In a world filled with sharks, bears, and killer bees, one man is brave enough to stay indoors to bring you the latest in gaming, movie, and pop culture news. That man is Tom Awesome, and this is the Outside is Overrated podcast. Hello and welcome to Outside is Overrated, a podcast about gaming and nerd pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your incredible, wonderful, well-prepared host, Tom Zidlachik, and today we are going to be discussing one of the biggest properties in fantasy media right now, The Witcher. We are discussing three books, The Witcher 3, Wild Hunt, and Season 1 of the Netflix show. It's going to be a great show. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Joining me for the discussion tonight are Hobbybox, Joe Burns. hey And I don't have a nickname, and none of the ones that I know for you are appropriate for the air, John Munch. <laughs> hello, hello. You can just call me Munch. That's all. That's the only name I need, man. I'm like, you know, the one-name celebrities. Just, just Munch is fine. Yeah, Munch up the jam. Munch it up. <laughs> I was going to say, you need to find someone whose nickname is Crunch, and then you guys could do a podcast called Crunch and Munch. Yeah. That's or, right. or I can introduce you this way. Munch, 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 munch. <laughs> you just can't get enough of that, can you? It makes me laugh. <laughs> Love air clapping. <laughs> oh, so do I, my friend. Welcome back to the show, guys. John, you haven't been on since the Dresden episode last year. What have you been up to, dude? Oh, man, so, so much. I moved. I finally, my house is finally finished building, so I am actually recording in my new office, which is awesome, and there's nothing on the walls except my new TV, but moving is great. Uh, dealing with leaves on a wooded lot is a pain, but... I have know. like seven trees, and it is the biggest pain in the ass. Oh, good. I made no, it well, one minute and 40 seconds before swearing. <laughs> new league record. Yeah, so doing that, building our hobby farm. So we built a shed, which, you know, basically is a barn now for our two pygmy goats who are awesome and the best animals ever to take care of. So just getting the house ready and then, uh, you know, just falling in love with From Software more and more. I played a lot of Demon Souls. That remake was awesome. Yeah, Burnsy hates From Software with a fiery passion. Why don't you two go out and about Demon Souls? I don't hate From Software with a fiery passion. I just uh... you hate it as much as anything I've seen you like hate. No, that that is not true. We we talked about X Men Three on the last podcast. That is something, and the Quiet Man we've talked about many times. Those are two things that I hate far form. I mean, I wouldn't even say I hate From Software. I would just say that there's games of theirs that probably aren't for me. Uh, but there are some that are, as we talked about on the Bloodborne episode. So Yeah, I'm, well, there's game that may be for you. Uh, I'm really looking forward to Elden Ring also. So I think that seems like it will uh, jive with me quite a bit. Sure. John, Sekiro? I have not yet. I That one, I worry, might be, even though the aesthetic would be really appealing to me because I really like the Japan setting, I'm worried that that one's going to be a little bit too hardcore from a gameplay standpoint to be able to fully like grasp and and settle into and i thought it was really intense but that was also before i played bloodborne i feel like my entire from software skill set has leveled up significantly from when i started playing bloodborne gotcha i sense a from software episode in the making yeah we're doing dark souls next year burns just jumped off of it burns why do you hate dark souls yeah, I, I just I I would rather like I told you I would rather play Bloodborne 
then go back and play Dark Souls, and then... So you're saying you hate From Software with a fiery passion. No, because then I would rather play Sekiro than that, and I'd rather play Elden Ring than go back and play Dark Souls. And I, I worry that the Dark Souls formula, like, from a gameplay standpoint, I wouldn't enjoy. Because it seems like, from what I've understood, is it's a lot more hangout, block, hit, block, hit... And I think that's what I struggled with in Demon Souls, and I like much more so the more fluid nature of the combat in Bloodborne. Uh, granted, maybe Elden Ring isn't going to be like that. It seems a little bit more fluid than what I've seen of a lot of people playing Dark Souls. Um, but I don't know. We'll have to see. Yep, Burns hates from software. John, <laughs> you also you played Deathloop. Tell us a little bit about that experience. I played a couple hours. It was great. Yeah, you know, I've I've scratched the surface. My copy's sitting at me staring, saying play more, play more, just because of The Witcher 3 is just taking over. It's great. I have not had a game that had just oozed so much character and, like, style in so long. I love Arcane. I love Dishonored. And, you know, so just taking that combat stealth piece out of that game and saying hey you know what we're gonna put it in like groundhog day type stuff with this really weird mechanic i've really liked it so far uh i mean like you know just it's one of those games i feel like gives you that opportunity to create stories right it's like a far cry-ish type deal where like oh you know the first time i ended up beating this one guy like i'm like oh i could hack all these turrets and set them all around and then like let him out and then watch just the turrets destroy everybody i love it it's great I was not a fan of Dishonored, and I would not consider myself an Arcane fan, but I love my time with Deathloop as well. It's fun. It's interesting. The way you put it, it it makes it interesting to me. What would Groundhog Day have been like if Bill Murray had an antagonist that was also groundhogging at the same time? Like, that's a very different movie, and maybe a much more interesting, probably not a comedy anymore. Maybe he did. Ned Myers. <laughs> Ned. Maybe that, it was Ned Myers the entire time. That first Which step if, is a doozy. So if you do want to watch a movie like that, oh, it's it's there's a, a groundhog ass movie out there. It's got Andy Samberg and I forget her name, but it's the mom from uh, How I Met Your Mother, right? And okay. It it's Groundhog Day and it's at a wedding, right? It's the exact same scenario. Are you sure and it's not just the uh, last season of How I Met Your Mother? <laughs> no, it's not the last season of How I Met Your Mother. Although that did feel like the same day over yeah. and over again. It, but, it felt like a disaster, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, it did. But no, it's it's an excellent movie, extremely funny, and there is an antagonist, how you're thinking, in that to some degree. So check it out if you're in, if you're in like the, the mood for a time loop. I'll figure it out and I'll send it out. The, Interesting. The show notes and stuff. I was not aware of that actress doing anything else, and I was so completely charmed by her in How I Met Your Mother. I thought she was wonderful, and I just hated how that show ended. That is something I hated with fiery passion, the ending of How I Met Your Mother. It's pretty bad. It's rough. For a show that I enjoyed as much as I did, yeah, it was such a letdown, because it's basically like, this is all the things that are sacred in this show, and we're just going to you know, crap on it. Yeah, let's light them all on fire and yeah. dump them off a cliff. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem with having an ending before, you know, and then like, you know, saying I'm, I have an ending. We're going to do it in three seasons or four seasons yeah. and then saying, well, we got to stretch this like eight seasons. <laughs> now, how do I shoehorn everything in yeah. into season? Was it season eight? I think so. Yeah, it was season uh, maybe there's just a curse with season eight. Maybe that's the problem. You know what show also had a horribly disappointing final season? Castle. 
we watched a lot of Castle. Big Nathan Fillion household here. And the last season was just awful. If they had chopped it one season earlier, it would have been such a satisfying, tidy ending. I never actually watched the last episode of that show. And, like, we watched six, seven seasons of 20 hour, or twenty episodes, hour-long episodes. Yeah. Like, it was a commitment, and we never saw the last episode. Castle. Anyways, we got a lot of stuff to talk about. <laughs> Burnsy, uh, before we jump onto The Witcher, what has been happening at twitch.tv slash hobbyboxburns these days? Uh, so I finished up uh, the original FF1 on the NES Classic and then played through FF1 again, the Pixel Remaster version, and uh, just finished that a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was a lot of fun to play through those two games and to sort of see how the original, because I'd beaten it before on the PlayStation PSP version, uh, and so seeing how the original fared, and it is rough, and like buying potions, like getting up to your 99 heal potions takes like five minutes to do, whereas in the Pixel Remaster, it takes like five seconds to just like... So it was interesting to see some of the differences. There is some, there's some of the aspects of it that are actually a little bit charming, like... I kind of, and maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome, but I kind of missed, like, having to select and, like, surmise, okay, I'm probably going to kill this one enemy with one attack, so I have to send my other attacks at these other enemies. There was a level of strategy to that that I started to enjoy, even though it's clunky as crap. Well, Burns, I did that when I played through it, too. Like, you could still, like, play that game in your head. But you don't have to. Like, that's the thing. Like, with the Pixel Remaster, you just hit the auto battle button, and it just bop, 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 and you roll through things so fast, you're just kind of like, you get almost addicted to the speed of it. It's like, it's a completely different game at that point uh, in some ways. Uh, But I, I still enjoyed it. It was still fun to play through that way. Uh, you level up a lot faster. Uh, I would really like somebody who's much more eloquent to do like a real good look at what it is that makes the Pixel Remaster easier. Because I'm not 100% sure if it's just like the changes with the potions and stuff like that or if it's actually like just easier because of whatever. John, you're a big Final Fantasy guy. Do you have any interest in going back and playing these classic titles in any format? So, Pixel Remasters do have me interested. Uh, once they come out to the Switch, which we all know they're going to because that will print money for, for Square Enix, yeah. I will be getting a copy of that and we'll play through all of them. Um, but what I feel like is I'm already playing through this, sort of, because I'm playing Dungeons & Encounters, right? Dungeon Encounters is basically, you know, Final Fantasy One without the overworld map, right? Because Final Fantasy One doesn't have much story, right? Yeah, really so let's doesn't. just take all the bad parts out of all the old games. <laughs> the only you're not playing Final Fantasy One, you played... right? Yeah, uh, right. And like, yeah, like that aspect of sometimes you know, like I know I ever played like Bravely Default and Octopath. Once you get your party to like, like I'm awesome, that auto battle loop can kind of kill the game. So mm-hmm. I kind of like that aspect of you know, oh. If I just attack, attack, attack in Final Fantasy One, like, yep, those five guys are gonna miss because this thing died. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dungeon Encounters fixes that, right, by really making you think about who's attacking when and where because of how they handle yeah. armor, magic, and hit points. So that's just been a really fun, like, oh, I'm just gonna sit down and like kill some stuff in a Final Fantasy combat style. Scratches that itch. 
because it really it breaks it down to like puzzles and it breaks it down into this is a puzzle to figure out what I have to do against this group of enemies. Now it's this group of enemies and it keeps showing you those different looks the deeper you get into it. Uh, so I think that is interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've already talked about that game on one of the podcasts or multiple podcasts. I don't remember anymore. Yeah, doesn't super duper grab me. <laughs> How about uh, Final Fantasy fourteen Endwalker? That got pushed back. What are you uh, What are you doing to fill that big old hole in your life that you're expecting at this joyous time of year? Well, so yeah, it's been it's given me time to try to do some of the things that I wanted to do prior to that. So I went back through and played through the Shadowbringers 24-man raid series, which uh, was Nier-based, so it was based on Nier Automata and linked in with the Nier Automata story. And uh, so I I played through that. It was interesting. Uh, It's something that a lot of Final Fantasy XIV fans either, like, really, really liked or were very lukewarm on, and I can kind of see that both ways. Uh, I think it did some interesting stuff. Uh, the The unfortunate thing is the kind of the end of it is sort of prolonged through like weekly quests to go back and keep like doing some things to uncover more pieces of it. And I don't know if it's going to pay off or not. And so that I'm not trying to finish before Endwalker because it's it's time gated and I can always come back and do that. Uh, there's a few other things that I want to try to get through a couple of the other raid things. And so those are some of the things I'm going to be focusing on in the last like week and a half until Endwalker early access is on December 3rd now. So looking forward to it. What's your hour count up to? Oh, boy. Um, I think last I checked, I was over 1300 hours in it. Um, Now, granted, some of that some of that was spent trying to buy a house. So just pointlessly clicking on a signpost for up to, you know, 16, 18 hours in one day. Uh, and some of it's like, cause one thing I'll do is I'll maybe log into it, uh, you know, while I'm working and then I'll take a five minute break and then go do one little quick thing and then jump back onto work and just let it run, you know, and in between that. So I'll sometimes do stuff like that too. Uh, so it's not like always gameplay focused all the time, but 1300 hours of pure gameplay. Exactly. For me, I started a new job. It's very exciting for me. I'm a content person now. Very exciting for me. I've got a baby and a toddler and a podcast and a standalone segment of that podcast and another separate show just for our supporters on Patreon. That's kind of my life. So you're a content person and now a content person. Yes. See, look at that. Look at that. You're the one who should be making a living with their words. Content, content person who makes lots of content. Yeah. Well, some people might say he's kind of a con. That lives in a tent? Yes. Yeah, that checks out. We got there. Totally. <laughs> I was just going to shrink content into one word, but it's not appropriate for yeah. her. Content is one word, yeah. John. Or like a short word. Or one, one syllable. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the floor is yours, my friend. <laughs> I've got my finger over the swear button. Here. <laughs> we'll just, just spell it. No, it's a bad word. <laughs> it's naughty language. I'll give you $100 to say f- right now. F- <laughs> not you. <laughs> Burns invalidated the offer. Ah. Before we launch into 17 hours of consecutive Witcher talk, we would like to thank our sponsor, Premier Health. 
check out their website at premierhealthmn.com. That's premierhealthmn.com. If you enjoy Outside is Overrated, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash OIO. That's patreon.com slash OIO. You can also follow most of us on social. Email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. Find me at Tom Sidlachik OIO on Twitter and Instagram, at HobbyBoxBurns on Twitter and twitch.tv slash HobbyBoxBurns, and follow the show at facebook.com slash outside is overrated. Our first topic today are the Witcher books, written by, oh, I should have brought a copy of the book down. I don't know how to say his first name. Andres Sarpowski? 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 Close enough. Yeah, good. good enough. Better than I would have done. Yeah, none of us are Polish, so it's hard for us to get it, like... Exactly correct. I'm a quarter Polish, though. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i like half. Oh, really? Yeah, well, I'm Czechoslovakian and German. I don't know. I'm European-ish. The books originally released in Poland in the 90s. They came to the U.S. in the 2000s. The specific books we're covering today are The Last Wish, released in Poland in 1993, released in the U.S. in 2007. It was a reprint of The Witcher, which originally released in 1990 with new material. This collection of short stories takes a twisted view on a number of classic fairy tales. Snow White and Beauty and the Beast stand out to me, but we'll talk more about the book in just a minute. We'll also be discussing The Sword of Destiny, another collection of short stories originally released in Poland in 1992. It came stateside in 2015. The Sword of Destiny tells a number of original tales focused on Ciri, Geralt, Dandelion, and Yen. And finally, The Blood of Elves, released in 1994 in Poland in 2008 in the U.S. It is a linear novel. Oh my god, I love the fact of this book. It is a linear <laughs> novel that primarily follows Ciri from her time in Kaer Morhen to her tutelage under Yennefer. To summarize, The Witcher originally came out in 1990, Sword of Destiny came out in 1992, and Blood of Elves came out in 1994. These books follow a handful of primary characters. Of course, the titular Witcher... Geralt of Rivia, Princess Cerulea, the Bard Dandelion, Yennefer of Vengenberg, and various political associations, including kingdoms and groups of mages. Did I miss any of the key points from a like overall summary point of view? Well, that's pretty good considering how robust the character list and world is. So, good job. Thank you. I thought it would be helpful for us to talk about some of our favorite authors and series before launching into The Witcher. For me, as I was thinking about this, I realized that I haven't read a tremendous amount of fantasy, despite my affection for fantasy and sci-fi. When I actually like started listing the series that I read, it's very, very few. The ones that stand out for me, George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire. like It blew up with the HBO show, and the fourth and fifth books were garbage and <laughs> just abomination level, but the first three books were phenomenal and I could read those three books over and over and over again they stand out to me as like the top I think both of you guys like more contemporary authors in Brandon Sanderson and uh, Patrick Rothfuss John you are a big fan of the King Killer series yeah I mean I have uh, his first book signed right it was an awesome gift I got from a, a community I'm a member of and just like to me it was let's take this kind of Harry Potter-ish, like, I'm going to be part of a school, right? And this and that. And I'm the, you know, person on the low end of the totem pole and almost like video gamey leveling up as he learns all these different skills and this and, that, and then wrap it up into, like, just this amazing story where, like, you really feel like you, 
are that character and can relate with that character. So, and you know, just like Martin, it takes him forever mm-hmm. to come out with the next book. So, yeah, I really liked his stuff. Um, yeah. Just a quick uh, question to clarify. George R. R. Martin is never, 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 never writing another book that talks about the characters that we care about from Westeros. Do you believe Patrick Rothfuss is going to continue the Kingkiller series? Yes, because he did write a small follow-up book about a single character, right? As a, I guess, you know, to hold us over type story. So I do think he's going to finish it. But George R.R. R. Martin has written like four books about like the history of Westeros and the history of the Targaryens uh, since he said that book six was a year away and that that was like five years ago. And so I don't know. It feels like it's in, I was just talking about this with some friends over the weekend, too. And how some of these fantasy writers just get lost in, like, I think it's the pressure of trying to continue a world that is so beloved and, like, followed by so many people and now has, like, a TV show about it, a miniatures game about it, all this other media about that thing. And it's so hard to see where that's going write books four and five and get some people to say that they're hot garbage and and then be like, how do I finish this? How do I get things through to the end? So I can completely understand how like George R.R. Martin maybe gets stuck on something like that. Book five wishes it was hot garbage. It looks up at hot garbage from down in the abyss and says, I wish I could be that when I grow up. I actually, I actually was okay with book five. I was not a huge fan of book four and I thought it got like just, lost a bit in it uh but i mean it it's not just like current authors that that happens with i mean robert jordan very famously got like lost in the wheel of time and i've heard from like numerous friends that basically after the first four books they don't recommend reading anything until you get to the brandon sanderson books at the end because it just it just gets so lost in all of this other details and world building well, John, you also mentioned that Wheel of Time is one of your favorite series by both Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson. Do you have a rebuttal for those first four books? No, that's exactly what I would tell everyone, right? It's the exact same thing. I got burnt out because I was like, look, just move it along, man. Let's <laughs> go, right? There's a lot of content in the world we need to read, right? And just like TV, right, in any media, you can kind of, you know, over uh, overstay your welcome right and yeah and and i appreciate the fact that martin you're saying these books are hot garbage see i won't waste my time reading any of them if four and five are that big of junk i'm not going to read one two and three. Oh, you're missing right? out one two three and are awesome one two and three are good i still think four and five are worth reading if you are really are a fan of westeros uh i'm excited if he comes up with a book six and seven and finishes it off to see where that goes and and now that the hbo series was completed to sort of see how it measures up to that i'm really curious to see what he does differently because a lot of the things that he set up in book five don't even never existed in the hbo series and so it could be wildly different um at least with some of the characters as to what happens with them 
Maybe Bran will sit in a tree for five books. <laughs> well, they are setting that up, yeah. so it's very possible. Yeah. Well, we were talking about Brandon Sanderson earlier. Joey, The Stormlight Archives by Brandon Sanderson is one of your favorite fantasy series. Yes, yes, and and he's actively writing that, and he is a very prolific fantasy author. I don't think, unless he like dies tragically <laughs> at, a, at a not so young, at a not you know at a at a medium age. Um, like, I think he should be able to finish it. Uh, his whole plan is to do 10 books. He has finished the fourth book, but it's like two sets of five books. Uh, and so after the fifth book, it's going to be like a different time period in the same storyline. Uh, and then go through five more books is kind of what the structure is. Um, and if he continues at the pace that he's going, it'd be like next November would be when book five comes out. But he, it's, it's interesting because he does a really good job of creating. It's a fantasy world, but it's like a little bit displaced from a lot of other fantasy worlds. It's, it's more political kind of like game of Thrones. Um, but like the way that he sets up magic within it is really interesting in that people don't really have for the most part innate magic ability it's all about tapping into using kind of these crystals to and gems to be able to like use that and generate it, so to speak, which is interesting, I think. So he used the materia system. Kind of. Yeah, you yes. could say that. Um, though materia is like used for all sorts of other things, too. And so in, in this world, materia is used for like lighting sources because it's. It's stormlight, and then the materia can be infused by leaving out in massive thunderstorms. All right, John, I'm going to turn to you with this one. You have a choice. You can either have lights on in your house, or you can throw a fireball with your hands. How are you using that materia, my friend? You throw fireballs yeah. with your hands. Fireballs all day, right? But, right? but, like, sure, you you use it to throw fireballs. Then there's a thunderstorm, you reinfuse it. You need light in between throwing fireballs. And so you're just like, okay, I'm just going to put this in my lantern and I get. Because it just. It doesn't lose anything from just generating the light. It's like when you use it for the mad, massive magic use, then that's when it like uses it up and you have to reinfuse it. Well, you know, we are. How cool shooting fireballs will be, right? That's, that's all you need. <laughs> yeah. And being human beings, like it is in our nature to just completely deplete that resource and just like bring every little inch of fireball that we can get out of those crystals until they're all gone. And then we'll figure something yeah, out. I mean, that is America. Yeah. America. America. <laughs> I have to go way back to think of another fantasy series that I truly adored. I have always had an affinity for Weiss and Hickman's Dragonlance series. It has been decades since I've read them. Hopefully they're still enjoyable, but I really, really enjoyed those back in the day. John, you have an affinity for... Are a Salvatore's Forgotten Realms novels. There is it, man. And, you know, it's interesting. You know, you, you bring up Dragonlance. I bring up kind of, you know, Drizzt and these almost pulpy fantasy, right? And it's what I remember reading, you know, when I was in high school and this and that, you know, it cut my teeth on, like, since, like, I was reading, like, Piers Anthony books in, like, fourth grade and, like, you know, magic and dragons. If it had a dragon on the cover, that's what I wanted to read. And, you know, uh, fantasy fiction has come, like, to this other end of the spectrum where we're talking Wheel of Time and the King Killer series and, you know, Song of Ice and Fire and George R.R. R. Martin and all this, like, huge, high fantasy, long stories. And, like, sometimes 
it's just great to like sit down and I'm going to read about a D and D party. That's going to go around and like save this town. Mm-hmm. Right. Or save the underdark or do something where it's like, look, it's, it's almost like, you know, your 30 minutes of like awesome action TV and I can go in and I can watch this and enjoy it and then close it. And like, I don't have to do too much thinking. And I, we need, I think we need some new fresh stories in that regard. It's fascinating to hear you summarize it in that way. I was never a big fan of Salvatore and especially Drizzt. Like I just, he always rubbed me the wrong way. I thought he was always moping about how he got such a bad deal. I'm like, yeah, you're a drow elf. Literally every other one of you is evil. I I get why there's a preconception against you. (laughs) Deal with it, dude. I always liked the side characters along with that. And I liked much like the Witcher, the person on the outside, right? Once he gets through, out of those first books and he's the drow out in the outside world, I always thought that was, you know, an interesting thing to kind of say, oh, here is this like, you know, he's going to have to go in and how is he going to interact with all these different races and people who like immediately are like, that dude's evil. He's horrible. He's no good. Right. So it was, you know, again, kind of like, you know, we can get into it in The Witcher that perceived book cover type of scenario it's interesting that you bring that up too because i preferred when he was in the underdark and he was like an outsider amongst his own people where he is the one that was just wired completely differently from everyone else good stories good part of the book i'm not (laughs) saying it's not great but you know as the story goes on i like the other aspect too i would be interested to go back to read those again someday Bernsey, you also had Neil Gaiman's American Gods and Mythology series on here. I've never read a Gaiman. I've seen a couple episodes of the uh, Amazon show uh, Angel and the uh, Demon. Um, yeah, um, Good Omens. Good Omens, yeah. Yes. I've seen a couple episodes of that because I'm a huge David Tennant fan. But I'm not familiar with his books at all. What uh, what makes them stand out for you? I've read I've read Good Omens also. Uh, him and Neil Pratchett wrote that. Uh, uh, for me... American Gods is one of my favorite books of all time. It'd be in my top five, top 10 for sure. And I think, and this is like, it's more modern fantasy because it's rooted in like American lore. And it's all about kind of these old gods that are forgotten by many and and sort of how they kind of live and persist and subsist uh, in the universe and are like pulling the strings to try to make things happen still. Uh, but they don't have a lot of sway because people don't really believe in them much anymore. So then it's like, well, how do we attach ourselves to the things that they do believe in still, like gambling and uh, money and all that? And, and so uh, to me, I think it's just a completely it's completely different from a lot of like your high fantasy or what we're looking at with a lot of the other fantasy stuff. And I think that's interesting uh, with mythology, which is just his take on Norse mythology. Uh, I think it was interesting in that it it stayed true to a lot of like the myths that you know and love about like Odin and Thor and all that stuff that we've we've heard about many times. We've seen it done in many different ways. Uh, And it was just interesting to see him take his sort of storytelling craft at it. And, you know, he's not afraid to get dark and have bad things happen, you know, to good people or whatever. Uh, And I think it's still just interesting to kind of go through and see. Uh, where he takes things and something even like that that's a little bit more scholarly as you would look at it as a lot of mythology books are typically viewed and he still makes it really interesting and good stories to to read through. That sounds fascinating. I should really check that out. It's interesting to me that none of us brought up Tolkien. 
But Tolkien, <laughs> Lord of the Rings is really good. I mean, is it is this the Star Wars effect where we just assume that everybody knows and loves the Lord of the Rings, or do we just not believe those books are that good? No, I, mean, I, I think they're excellent books. I mean, yeah. it's, they're excellent books. They stand out in, a, in a, an area of their own, right? And I think it's just that understood, like, hey, yeah. you know, if you're in that mood, because you got to be in the right sort of mood to read Tolkien, because it's like, look, you got to be ready to read some words and, like, yeah. really just, like, immerse yourself in that world and then read some more words and then read some more words, right? <laughs> and be ready for that. Uh, and I think it's it's awesome. It's amazing the world he builds. Yeah, what I so. think it, what I think it is is I think it's if you were with like a Bible study group and you're like, well, what other what books can we read that are that are about like about religion and stuff like that? You don't have to just sort of outright say, well, we'll start with the Bible and then we'll move from there. Like Tolkien is kind of that for fantasy. He was the grandfather of fantasy and so you don't really have to say that you know well token of course um question to you guys what is your favorite token novel hobbit the hobbit yes. get out of here yeah i agree with john a hundred percent the yep. hobbit was my favorite huh. the hobbit's my favorite because it's, it's, it's probably partially nostalgia yeah right it's the first one I read. I read it yep and this and that but again like the hobbit scratches more of that I, I feel like he you know Tolkien does so much world building and so many cool things in one book versus hey let me go ahead and like let's talk about Tom Bombadil and for like four <laughs> chapters right and like you know time is a precious commodity I'll go back and I'll reread The Hobbit right because I can knock that out in a week right just reading every little bit here and there and like it's got a pace to it I really like I have to be committed to say, I'm going to read the Lord of the Rings this year. All right. When am I going to sit down and read this thing? <laughs> because I can't be too tired. Right. Cause I'll get sleepy. Right. I'm 40 now. Tolkien will put me to sleep. So <laughs> it's the Hobbit. Yeah. But man. not the movie, Tom, not the movie. Thank you. I, I'll agree with you. Not on that. the movie. Yes. Look, Which and you movie? know what the, prob the, the problem with the problem with the movie versus look, the Lord of the Rings movies, yes, please make them long because that's a beautiful world that Peter Jackson did great. The Hobbit was a short thing. They should have done it all in one shot. Yes. Bing, bang, boom. Maybe Literally two. the whole movie in one shot. Yeah. <laughs> Just Smog. Although, <laughs> Smog was great. I did like Smog in that movie. Yeah, fantasy novels are good. Coming to The Witcher. I think one of the things that stands out about Sarpovsky to me is he has a very non-linear style of storytelling. Bernsey, does this does his style satisfy you? Does it leave you wanting? What do you think of that non-linear approach, especially in the collections of short stories? Yeah, I mean, in, in the short stories, I think it makes sense as, as, you know, he was kind of just sort of going for these are vignettes taken at different times. Um, and especially like in The Last Wish, I, I don't know that he had necessarily a plan for it. It was just, here's other stories I came up with about this guy named Geralt um, and the things that he gets into. And then I think with the sort of destiny, it was like, okay, I have this grander, huge story that I want to tell. These are the other bits that I want to get out there before I uh, get into the crux of it. And I think that's very apparent because the sort of destiny, while the stories still jump around a bit, like they follow a general path. They're all heading 
somewhere as opposed to being the series of unrelated things. John, uh, your takes on the non-linear storytelling. I enjoyed it, right? And I think because those first few stories, you know, Serposky does this great thing where he ties into stories we already know, right? It's a little bit of Marvel What If, where I'm going to say, what would, you know, uh, Cinderella be like? Snow White be like? What would, you know, Beauty and the Beast be like? If we just shifted and tweaked this world just a little and we put this different type of character in there. So I loved uh, those stories, but also I came into those stories knowing who Geralt is, knowing who Yennefer and Ciri and everybody is. So having the multiple media points and knowing the end of something or at least bits and pieces of it, even though it's not a one-to-one sync gives it a little bit more of that like, oh, this is like that part in the game where this, or oh, this is like that part in the show where this. I read The Last Wish after hearing how big The Witcher 3 got, and then I was going to go back and I was going to play the games in order, and then I was going to read the books in order to kind of compare and contrast. That isn't the way life quite worked out for me. I did not particularly care for The Last Wish as my entry point into The Witcher universe. John, had you played all of The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt? Had you played all The Witcher games before reading the novels? They had, yes. That must have had an interesting, uh, that must have really colored your perspective. Burns, where did you come into The Witcher from? So I actually, so I played the first like 15 hours or so of The Witcher 3 before I'd done anything else, but then uh, put that down like in 2016. And so really the starting off point for me was a TV show. Uh, I watched that all the way through first, and then I did that last year when it came out. And then this year started, actually, I started reading the books, read through The Last Wish and The Sword of Destiny, I think, before I really got back into Witcher 3, Uh, which was nice because there are some like very instant callbacks in the very beginning of The Witcher 3 that it's just like little things that he says to Yennefer. And it's just like, oh, yeah, I remember that from this. There there are callouts throughout the books like Doodoo is a character in The Witcher 3. Yeah. And, like, I just got lucky with that. I just read the, uh, well, I can't remember which story that was, but the story that Doodoo's in. Yeah. Um, and then, like, he immediately rolled into the game. I'm like, oh, the Bibervelts. Cool. Yeah, I think that is one thing, and we'll maybe talk about it when we get into The Witcher 3. They do a really good job of, like, they've charted their own course with the story to an extent, but still, like, tying it in and having those touch points that are like, this is still that which I think is interesting. Uh, the funny thing about like what you guys are saying about The Last Wish and it being the fairy tales, I did not put that together until you guys wrote that on the page. But it's interesting because it is. It's like, and, it, and it's funny because it's almost like taking it full circle and bringing the fairy tales back to Grimm, so to speak, but you, doing it in his own way. Because, you know, we've seen these stories Disneyified. uh you know, and, and whitewashed and, and, and sterilized for kids consumption. And so it actually is kind of cool bringing it back to kind of how Grimm originally created it, where it's like, Oh, good people die. Bad crap happens. This is, this is the world that we're trying to prepare our kids for. You know, I can see why you like George R. R. Martin so much. <laughs> yes. For me, I had such a hard time with the nonlinear storytelling 
I want to hear the whole Geralt and Yen story from beginning to end. And it just jumps around so much because like in the last wish, they meet in the last story. And then uh, in the first story in the sort of destiny, like there's been time has passed. Things have happened. I'm like, well, what happened? <laughs> Tell me what happened. I want to know. And then you jump into the Witcher 3 wild hunt and like there's a huge reveal about Siri in the beginning. I'm like, oh my God. Like I have all these random disparate pieces of information. <laughs> I just want to see how the puzzle all fits together. Just, like, tell me all the stuff and, like, preferably from A to B to C to D. Yeah, you, I think, really got hit by the multiple media onslaught, right? Because you were coming in from, you know, the books, the the TV show, and the game all have different starting points and middle points and different story points, right? If you would have just picked one path, it makes things a little clearer because, oh, if I start at Witcher 1, then Witcher 2, then Witcher 3, you understand that story and the relationship between Triss and Yennefer and, and Geralt and, and everyone there, right? And, you know, Dijkstra and Roche and all these other side characters, right? You get all that from the game, but then when you come into the novels, they're just all in the books and you're like, oh, wait, that guy, I, uh, who's this and who's that? And then they bring them back later on and you're like, I think I remember this. But is this a guy from the thing over there? And then like, oh, yeah, Philippa, is, was she in this story? I think she was in that one, maybe in this one. It <laughs> does get a little bit wonky. You need a flow chart. You listed some notable characters. You listed Geralt's horse in that list of characters. You think I? Well, yes, I did, but also. Oh, Vernon uh, Roche, yeah. Vernon oh, Roche, not Roche. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Roche and Roach. Yeah. And actually, I'm pretty sure in I've, I've seen it somewhere. I've, I feel like he named his horse after him on purpose. Like it's a it's a joke. I, that's in my head. That's like my own little canon. <laughs> head canon. I didn't realize that was a thing until uh, oh, was yeah. that the Miss Show that we were talking about? Yeah, it? I, mean, I've, I've, I think I've mentioned head canon a couple times. Yeah, canon. Good stuff. Coming back to these stories once again, what were these standout stories in these first three books? And granted, two of these are collections of short stories. One is a novel, but I wanted to spend some time talking about some of our favorite stories. John, let's start with you and a grain of truth. Tell us a little bit about the story and why it stands out for you. Yeah, so it's it's the Beauty and the Beast, right? Type of deal, and it's just fun to like see Geralt in this house and how there's it really kind of flips the the captor portion of beauty and the beast on its head because it's almost so much like you know hey you know this guy really isn't the the beast is more of the captor and the woman is keeping him there so you know and again it humanizes the monster right and i feel like that is a big part of the witcher is who are the real monsters in these stories right you know and uh, this, you know, is it the monsters that people are killing? Sometimes, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a Kikamora or it's, you know, a, a Wyvern or something. But sometimes it's just someone who, like, you know, is different and like Doodoo or uh, the, the monster in Grain of Truth. That story stood out for me too. And I can't really put my finger on it. Maybe it is the humanization of the monsters. I liked the way that the house was magic and just responded to the beast's commands and like he thought food and like food appeared but for some reason he couldn't think more chairs <laughs> one of the points in the story is like he always puts on this big show whenever a lady comes over and like he smashes furniture because he's a big burly beast and like there's he's down to one chair in the house when Geralt gets there yeah. just wish for more chairs dude <laughs> more chairs a story that we each liked and Joey I'll look to you to take the lead on this one the bounds of reason tell us a little bit about this story and what makes it stand out for you 
what was interesting about that is th- that was probably my favorite episode of the series, the first season of the series. Uh, and I think reading through it, it was it was really interesting because I mean, three jackdaws is a villain. Trenton Mirth is is a really interesting character, and the whole like setup for it, like especially reading through it and knowing where it was going and seeing like the little, little bits of hints that are given uh, in the writing that that's where it's leading to, I think is really interesting. And it's also just this, this tale of like this grand adventure of a bunch of people coming together to try to go find this dragon and slay the dragon, so to speak. Um, And I think that is also just cool because that's a very typical, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons that happens all the time, but here it's like, we're going to turn this on its head, spin it a bit, so that you don't necessarily know where it's going. Uh, and I think that was why it was also so good um, because of that. And then like Geralt as the Witcher, who looks at the positive side in monsters specifically, uh, like it puts him in like that interesting conundrum uh, as to like what he's doing. But then again, I think like going through and watching the episode again too, it's like, it doesn't seem like he's ever really planning on killing the dragon. He's really just there. Well, he's there because of Yennefer, but he's also there, I think, because he feels sorry for Free Jack Dawes, or at least the story he says with like, you know, he wants to go on a last adventure. Uh, and, and so he I think he's like sees something in that and wants to like help him with that, too. Uh, so I think there's just lots of really good touchstones in there. Yarpen Zigrin comes up later on, too, and it's an interesting character also. Uh, so, yeah, there's lots of reasons, I think, why that one stands out to me. It's interesting that it was your favorite episode of the show, and we'll talk more about the show later, but I was a little disappointed having read the story first. They really had to condense a lot of it, I mm-hmm. felt, for the show, and I felt like that did a disservice trying to tell that story within an hour. To set it up just a little bit more, Geralt meets a new friend at the beginning of this adventure. Like, he stumbles across another adventurer, and he kind of gets roped into going along on this adventure with them. My interpretation from the short story was that the hook is there's supposedly a gold dragon that this band is like going to slay and gold dragons aren't supposed to exist. And so Geralt goes along as a professional curiosity to see this golden dragon. I just thought that was such an interesting premise. And then it pays off with a really interesting ending that I don't necessarily want to spoil Mm -hmm. here. Uh, But I just thought from beginning to end, it was a super interesting tale. John, you also had this on your list of standout stories. What, uh, what was the magical part for you? This is The Witcher, the heist movie, right? (laughs) That's like, look, everybody loves the heist movie. Let's assemble the team, right? (laughs) We got this person over here, and this we got the we got the driver, and we got the bomb guy, and I got the hacker, right? So it was The Witcher, the heist movie, with this just hodgepodge of different characters that were all trying to, you know, we're all working together but they were all individually had their own motives and i i just love the mismatch of all the characters i love the dwarfs i love the over like righteous knight mm-hmm. right like just so funny like has everything that i like has a great ending i love and like i love the interaction between yennefer and and Geralt in this story just because like it's at a point in their relationship where like look stuff is not good between them Mm -hmm. for whatever reason because you really don't know timeline wise right why and so it's it's just a fun like another thing to throw into the mix of course you don't know what's happening between them because the (laughs) timeline is all over the place you never know 
where they are in their lives. Like, it's just maddening. It's like, oh, yeah, this is really, really toxic now. I thought they were in love. What what happened? The unicorn happened. Got broken. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, uh... The unicorn is when they're on good terms. That is. Oh, yeah. Now but I remember that was unicorn. when it all ended. That was when it all ended. Uh... That was one of the last things I saw in The Witcher 3 was them uh, breaking that back in, which I thought was amazing. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't get to that. Oh, sorry. My absolute <laughs> favorite story, neither of you guys had it on your list, but I loved a little sacrifice out of the Sword of Destiny. In this story, Geralt and Daddy Lion are broke. And they're in this little seaside town. Geralt's trying to find work, and he's getting shafted by the uh, local authority figure. And they wind up, somebody recognizes Dandelion, so they get invited to perform at a wedding. And there's another bard there who's a lady bard. And lady bard, of course, just falls in love with Geralt, has to jump all over him. And he's just not interested in her. And it was just interesting to see how that played out. And, like, this bard was a friend of Dandelion, so it just made a complex dynamic between Geralt, Dandelion, and the bard, who was seemingly supportive of the whole situation. And then at the end, you get to see Dandelion's like true character shine through dandelion in my perspective is portrayed in a certain way as a womanizer as uh someone who can't be satiated in any of the desires of the flesh or in any romantic way whatsoever and you find out at the end of this that he's got some real heart and i i always suspected that was there because of the bond that he and Geralt have and like how tight they are in their adventures and it was just it's interesting for me to see what he did at the end of this story that just uh solidified him as a good person to me. Burnsy, we've talked about this a lot. I care very deeply about the quality of character in my characters. Like, uh-huh. I want to know that the good guys are the good guys so I can root for the good guys, and I want to know the bad guys are the bad guys so I can despise the bad guys. A little sacrifice. I love this story. I, I enjoyed it, too. Uh, it was on my short list to make the list. I figured that I would put some other things that weren't on there from what everybody else had put to some extent. Um, and, and one of the characters, the character you're talking about, Essie Davin, uh, does come up in my list of favorite characters because I think there's a lot that she brings out in both Geralt and Dandelion uh, that I think is really interesting. And so, yeah, I, I enjoyed that story quite a bit, too, as well as the, I think the other stuff that they're doing in that town, too, I think is kind of interesting. Uh, the whole like mermaid or merfolk i don't even know if they're really mermaids type of thing uh which i thought was just kind of it was interesting also so i think that one was really well done i agree we are smart people (laughs) john one of the stories that resonated to you and to you too bernsey but we'll start with john on it is something more this story didn't particularly grab me why did it stand out so much for you you know it, it and i really like you know we'll get to it when we talk about the the tv episode counterpart right they do a great job in the tv episode um it you know there's the moments in the story you know where and again it's all about Geralt's relationship with the end is a huge you know through line for me through all this right i'm which you're i'm Geralt yen that's my ship right or whatever (laughs) uh but like those moments where you know he thinks he sees her name on the the tomb right and just you know getting to that end and finding siri and like finally like seeing everything like it was that culmination of like ah here's where all the dots connect and boom 
right? So, you know, you have those great movies and, and media sources where you don't know what's happening with all these different things. And then when it finally comes together in the end and you're like, and here we go. Right. So yeah. I think it's a great story for that aspect. And then like sets up like, and now let's kick into the actual linear aspect of things. And I think the other thing that to me really stood out about it, um, other than like the ending, which I think the ending is like pretty touching of him, like getting reunited with Siri. Um, or well, united with Siri, they was never actually well. Okay, that's <laughs> the whole like continuity of all that gets confusing in my head because I think he did see her before that to some extent in the books. Um, but anyway, uh, I think the most important thing that comes out of the story is his sort of touch point with his mother, who is like this this magician. I can't remember her name off the top of my head now. But like when he's kind of in this fever after being bitten by the by the ghoul um, as the uh, I think I can't his as Yurga, I believe, is the name of the merchant that's that's uh, uh, sort of taking him back home. And I think like that whole bit and getting that understanding, that deeper understanding of how he still had these like just just this huge frustration with his mother about how she just kind of abandoned him and didn't give him the choice. Like it comes up in other media, how he didn't have a choice to be a witcher. He was just, he was shoved into being a witcher um, and he's embraced it, but like there's still some of that resentment there. And I think the other part of it is, I mean, being a witcher, he was raised by men uh, in a world of men and, and manly things. And I think that whole bit of that where, He's kind of thinking about all of these women in his life, in his life, and how like Yen and Triss and Siri and and all these people that he, these women that he surrounds himself with, um, is because he's seeking that like that outlook that he never had, kind of growing up, and and I think it's just this fascinating kind of dive into the character that you know never really happens otherwise with Geralt. Uh, you get to see the character, like his character through the decisions he makes a lot of the time. And here it's like this retrospective, like, how am I the way that I am? And how would things have been different if I wouldn't have been abandoned by my mother kind of thing? And, and you know, like, as you find out later on, and it might be in a different, I think it's in a different book that we haven't gotten to. Like, people are asking him, why didn't you become a wizard? You could have become a wizard. Your mother was a magician, you know. Um, and he's, uh, he didn't have that choice, but is that a life that he maybe would have wanted to take? Like it's, that's an interesting thing to think about that gets brought up at that point also. And so I think that is another reason why that story stood out to me on top of those other things is that, that, that sort of how important it was to him losing that relationship with his mother and how he's in ways seeking that strong female companionship. Um, and needs that to sort of guide him to some extent, which is why he's constantly seeking that out in real life also. And you, you touch on a couple of things that make this, I think, one of the most important stories for The Witcher, mm -hmm. right? Because you, you say, like, normally we see Geralt based upon his actions. What's he doing? Who's he's go who is he going after? What monster is he killing? This and that. He's incapacitated for 90% of the story. Sure, we get to see him fight a ghoul. Awesome. All right, he kills a ghoul. Then he's out, 
right? It's a fever dream. He is mm-hmm. being carted around by someone else, right? So that's huge. And then the other thing is you're seeing his emotion, right? And this whole thing of like witchers aren't supposed to have emotion, right? You know, they're, you know, it's, 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 Bred, not bred out of them, but it's like basically all, by all the mutations, they don't have any sort of they're sterile and they don't have any emotions. They can't cry. They're they're just like nope, we're machines basically, which is the furthest thing from the truth. When you talk to all these different witchers and see all of them throughout the different media, and you know really hits home in this story, and you see several of his emotional just kind of shifts. How much better would it have been if when he bumped into Siri, he just would have said, come with me if you want to live? That would have been pretty awesome. (laughs) It's interesting the deep connection that you both had with this story and with the turmoil Geralt felt about his mother. For me, I thought his mom was just shoehorned in. I'm like, where the heck did she come from? It's like, oh, well, he was conceived when he shouldn't have. There is no... The world has firmly established that sorceresses are sterile, so, like, he shouldn't have existed. And I thought that was interesting, but that was as far as, like, I thought about his mother. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that disappointed me about the the TV show. Um, And I I feel it just makes more sense to bring it up now in that, like, I think it was it was very easy to lose the fact that that's who he was talking to. Uh, They did an interesting job of, like, interspersing the different people uh, in there, you know, like he sees Renfrey in that when he's sort of feverish and somebody else and somebody else. Um, but it, it, it's not really clear that that's who she, who he's talking to is his mother. Like you can infer that, and especially having read it, it makes a lot more sense now. Uh, but I don't think that they handled that as well as maybe they could have or didn't put the importance on that as much as the short story definitely did. And granted, you're hampered with how much time you have in a in a show to be able to show that. Uh, but that's one thing that I thought it kind of missed a little bit with that and how poignant that story was to me anyway. And to add on to that point, I think stylistically they're often trying to blend multiple things together mm-hmm. just for a different feel of things <laughs> converging and moving together. And I think in that particular instance, they could have really benefited from diving into his mother a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Yenna for a little bit. Brinzi, you mentioned both the last wish which is the first appearance of Yennefer, and also the chapters from the Blood of Elves when Ciri and Yen are together towards the end when uh, Yennefer is tootling young Ciri. What draws you to this character and these stories in particular? So I think with <clears throat> with The Last Wish, I think the reason why I'm drawn to that so much is you have these like three characters that are kind of all like wrapped up in like their own sort of pursuits. Right. Uh, And, and, and then they end up like converging kind of together. Uh, I think because it's the first time you meet Yennefer and like you get this sort of very stereotypical, you know, wicked witch on a power trip, trying to control everything like out of her character Um, and like the whole, like, especially the thing that like the whole lilac and gooseberries thing gets really sort of hammered home. And like, I think part of it that I really like was like the, the whole description of him falling under the trance 
and then like coming out of it like he had blacked out after a night of drinking and did all this bad stuff and now he's in prison and this other guy who's been charmed by Yennefer too is like trying to explain like this is what happened you know <laughs> you're screwed now <laughs> kind of thing uh, and, and I think it's just it's really interesting because then as the story progresses and it all just kind of like comes together at the end and like it's not because he's charmed that he's trying to like save her um, and protect her from the gin. It's like this this other thing, like this other like bond or connection that he feels to her, um, which is stronger than like what the elvish guy has that's just like smitten with her. Right. Um, and, and I think that's like the other part of it that's interesting to me is just this sort of like this other driving force uh, to get there, uh, which I think I think it's I think it's interesting. Uh, and, and I thought that that was a really a really neat way to introduce her as a character uh, to the series. Um, and let me cut you off before you launch into Blood of Elves. I think. It's hard not to talk about the show and the short stories yes. in the same breath. And thinking about Yennefer specifically, the portrayals are vastly yeah. different. I just wanted to take a moment to talk about her from the book perspective. Like, she seems like a stone-cold bee out of that game. Like, <laughs> yes. you don't know a lot about her. The show spends a lot of time showing her backstory and showing a lot of the things that color her perspective and kind of led her down the path to where she is now, which... Way did you guys think was more interesting for Yennefer? The not knowing as much about her, or did you like seeing the complex buildup that colored her perspectives? John, you're a Witcher expert. Uh, I actually loved the backstory that they gave her within the TV series. Um, really, and not only just like because of you know her you know history, but also like you really got to understand what it took. Right, sacrifice is a huge thing in mm -hmm. the in in this world, right? So what it took to become a sorceress, right? Like and what that entailed, and like you know that aspect of dedication and and all the things that came with that, right? So it gives that color to like, well, maybe that is like you know in the search of power, like I've forgone forgone all else. Right. So I am going to be this cold hearted woman and I'm just after the gin because the only thing I care about right now is power, 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 power. And that then and you see why she's at that point and then see how Geralt impacts that and says, whoa, there's something more. Right. It's not all about power. No, this is the last wish, not something more. I'm, ki I'm kidding. <laughs> Bernie, I'm going to pivot to you here. This is a Polish fantasy series. We played The Medium earlier this year, which is set in like post-war Poland. With the themes of sacrifice in The Witcher, how awful do you think it was living in Poland <laughs> in the uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s? The, the decades that probably colored Sarpowski's view of the world and infused in his characters that we love in these stories. I mean, like, I mean, especially the forties are verifiable. We're verifiably terrible in Poland. Um, and the cold war, I don't think was fantastic for it either as it was a country caught between, you know, two like warring nations that even though they weren't warring anymore, they were still at odds between, you know, the Soviets and then, you know, German Germany, like modern Germany uh, after after the war. Uh, and so I, I, I think that is a lot of what it is. It's it's a, it's 
like historically a bit bleaker area to have been in. And Poland was kind of like smack dab in the middle of all of that. Uh, and so I think that is a lot of, I think that's a lot of where some of this can kind of come from, right. For him. Uh, and you know, going back to like the Yennefer piece of that, I mean, I think that's, that's a lot of that you kind of see in that, right. This sort of had a terrible upbringing, you know, nothing really good happened to her until she found magic. And, uh, I, I think, I really think that the portrayal in the show, uh, was really well done. And I think it's important because I think if they didn't have that and you met Yennefer in the, the show, the same way that you met her in the books, uh, you would have thought you would have hated her throughout the entire episodes until they started to show more of that backstory. Uh, and now I don't know, like, to what extent did any of this backstory happen in any of the books? Like, was any of this, like, novelized previously, John, or? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, you know, I think I, I, I'm still working my way through all the novels, and I don't think that her backstory to that extent, you know, was. Yeah. There's, there's parts about, like, I think, you know, I do think the, you know, uh, like, her, the body contortion yeah. and that. Like that stuff was in there, right? I used to be ugly, and now I sacrificed, and now I can make myself beautiful, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but like, they don't go into it with like that detail, right? Yeah. Um, that you're seeing, right? And really, there's there's not a lot of even in that backstory. There's not a whole lot of uh, exposition, right? Mm -hmm. There's not big lengthy narratives and this and that. It's really just seeing her experience in that small village to then making her way into, you know, learning to control her powers and what that looks like and the sacrifice and like, you know, being turned into an eel, right? Uh -huh. Or her watching her yeah. friends get turned into an eel and, and all that sort of stuff. And just like, you know, again, that quest for power and saying, I'm going to be the one that's going to get this because you know what? Nothing's going to be handed to me for free. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because, you know, and, and we're obviously, you know, we're talking about the show along with this because I mean, they're very tied together. These two short stories like are the basis for what the first season of the show was. A lot of what happens in those are what's in that, in that series. Uh, I, and for me having watched that first, like I approached her character reading through the short stories in a different way too, because I had that understanding. Um, and I've been curious as to what of that's going to come up uh, in this or not, um, which it, it hasn't so far either, as far as I am into the books. Uh, and, but I think, I think it's really interesting, uh, like having that knowledge from the show and that driving force of, she gave up like being able to have kids in order to, you know, not be a hunchback and in order to have magic and have power and to be able to like have a place in society, which is what she was seeking. And almost immediately she started to miss the fact that she couldn't have a child. Um, and so what makes then the part of the blood of elves that I brought up. So interesting to me where you get these vignettes of Siri and Jennifer, like Yennefer taking Siri under her wing and teaching her about magic and how magic works. And it's sort of this full circle process for her of finally being able to have this way to be a parent, even though she couldn't be a parent. 
Um, and it's the same type of thing for Geralt. Also, he wasn't going to have that opportunity. That opportunity was taken from him, not by choice like it was for Yennefer, but for him, it was by the circumstances of his upbringing. Um, and like he continues to get to miss out on that uh, because just destiny keeps drawing them apart as it draws them together. Uh, and, and so I think that was what was so interesting about the end of that. Uh, of the end of the first novel for me. My favorite moment in all of the Witcher media that I've consumed so far actually happens between Ciri and Yen in that same period. Yennefer decides that she's going to take Ciri on as a pupil, and she's laying out all the ground rules, saying there's going to be absolute honesty. From this point on, you will never tell me a lie, or you will be expelled forever. And that goes two ways. You can expect the same thing from me. And Ciri says, does that start right now? And Yen says, yes. And so Ciri asks, so what's between you and Geralt? <laughs> right. Just killed me. And then Yennefer called her a green-eyed viper, and the yeah. story goes on from there. Yeah. But I just love that moment. Also, and I, we need I, I think... So let's go back one more time just back to before we wrap this up, right? Is you know, we talk about that the one key point I think you're that you know is, is really easy to to miss, right? Is that sacrifice, you know, for Yennefer to no longer have children and how that ties to Geralt. And, you know, you don't know about that when you if you start reading the short stories. You really don't get that until you don't have that like that build up, right? So you're all it's almost a little bit like, you know, where do you want to have that realization in the story? If you're reading the novels and you just read the novels, you get that later on, right? When then like, oh, now series into it and like, oh, she was just going that that's why mm-hmm. and the the genie and why it was so important because of all this, right? Yeah. And you know, so you get that really cool kind of twist, right? That investment into the media. But then the other way you have that compassion starting out from the get go, right? Of like, oh, okay. I see like she did this and that that's why she's here. I understand why she's so intent on getting this genie because she'll do anything to be able to flip this back. Well, let's pivot and talk about some of our favorite characters from the series. John, you have an affinity for Siri. I thought she... I liked her a lot in the video game, and we'll get there. Why does she stand out to you in the written works? You know, I have daughters. <laughs> right? I have daughters, so, too. Are you saying I'm a terrible father? <laughs> hey, I didn't say it. <laughs> no, you're not. But no, like, I think that it's a very she's a very unique character for a fantasy setting. I can't think of another novel I've read where you have... Uh, you know, the almost spoiled brat princess, right? I, I, I love the fact that, you know, they could have easily made this a boy, right? Mm-hmm. And say, well, we're going to take you to be a witcher and this and that. And like, no, we're going to make you, uh, we're going to make you a girl. We're going to make it this, you, you, this unique child out of this crazy, unique situation, right? And also, like, really make you an orphan. Right. Like you don't really know your mom. You loved your grandma. Now you've seen your grandma die. Right. You're being chased. So just the level of what this child has to go through and then to see her continue to grow and evolve. And actually, the series parts of the book so far have always been. Have, have so far been some of my favorite parts of the linear story telling. Right. Because 
she asks those questions because she pushes because she's like, I don't want to do this and I don't want to be here. And it's almost like the background story you get for Yennefer in the TV series. You kind of get that for Siri in a different way through the books. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the character a whole lot in the TV series for a lot of that same thing. I just think it's a great, they do a great job with that character. Um, showing that like vulnerability that's scared but like determination like no i'm gonna get through this so i think it's a really interesting character um and then like yeah i'm i'm a dad so i'm rooting for this awesome girl to like make it through sure and joey you also like siri you like specifically what she brings out in yennefer yeah i i think for me um and and I so I've read through now I'm near the end of the fourth uh novel of the five novel Witcher Witcher, Witcher saga and so it, it, like I I think for me a lot of like the series stuff that I really like comes later than the first novel and so for me a lot of the things that I liked about Siri was the interplay with her and Yennefer and that different side in the books that you finally get to see of Yennefer that you really don't see a whole lot. Cause even when she's like getting along with Geralt and seems like a normal person with him, then there's like, Oh, but then there's this other wizard that she isn't really telling Geralt whether she loves him or not. And all this other stuff. There's always like a caveat to like Yennefer being like a nice redeemable character. And finally with Siri, she's being harsh, you know, like a parent would be, uh, or a teacher would be. Uh, but basically like that's, she's bringing out the humanity in Yennefer. And I think, I think a lot of that, I really like that. And I think just the interplay of those two characters, two strong willed women kind of duking it out a little bit. Um, I think is just a really interesting and fun thing to experience and watch and see how that develops. And so I think that's that's a lot of the reasons why I really liked Siri in that part. I cannot wait to see that battle unfold in my house. John, are you there yet? <laughs> With teenage girls? Not teenage, but you know what? Ten-year-olds and a stubborn and strong-willed nine-year-old, it's pretty close. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm just a few years behind you. <laughs> Bernsey, it seems like you like characters that draw the best out of the people around them. You also mentioned Essie Davin and what she reveals about Dandelion in my favorite story, A Little Sacrifice. Yeah, I I, I just, I think that's one of the strengths um, of these books is it does a lot by showing you and not telling you, which is like the number one rule of like writing, right? Show, don't tell. Don't just tell people hey, Dandelion actually really does have, like, a heart, and he's not just this vain, like, you know, pumped-up weirdo, pompous weirdo, yeah. Um, But he actually has, like, a driving force and factor behind him and and, and has more of a character. And he could tell us that, and it's like, oh, okay, I kind of figured. Thanks for letting me know. But instead, you give this sort of situation that he's in uh, with this character and how, like, the moment she shows up, he's completely different around her and Geralt notices it. Um, and, and, and just as like they delve more into that character, like you just get to see more and more about Dandelion. And, um, and I think that that, I think that's really interesting. 
and, and I, I think that's one of the strengths of the series in general is how the interaction between the characters brings out more about each of them. And, and it's especially effective if you've already met someone in certain aspects um, like Dandelion. You've seen him in multiple stories before that point, but now you just see him in a different light. Um, and, and so I'm really excited to see because uh, I think some of that in like the actual show is brought out about Dandelion a little bit. Um, and I'm interested to see them develop that more in that as well. Me too. I love Dandelion. And I think there are a couple of things that draw me to him. He has a sense of adventure. Like he wants to be where the action is happening. He wants to chronicle it. Like I have a little bit of a reporter streak in me. So like I get wanting to see the story, wanting to capture the story, wanting to tell the story. So mm-hmm. that's always resonated. And I always thought there was more beneath the surface that I could sense and just couldn't see. And like you mentioned with Essie, it was just, it was nice to see it. It was nice to have that validated and to learn. Yeah, he is the character that I thought he was. That's great. I love Dandelion. Another character that stands out to me is Renfrey. Renfrey was the equivalent of Cinderella from A Lesser Evil. John, I know this was one of your favorite stories. What stood out to you about this princess who had a rough go of life? You know, I just like the point to me of A Lesser Evil and this character. Um, I love that aspect that Geralt, there's, there's no good decision here. Mm-hmm. Right, there's no good decision. Kobayashi Maru, yo. Do <laughs> what? Kobayashi Maru, yo. Exactly. Like no one's winning. So, what do I have to do to you know the lesser evil? What causes the least impact? Right. And I think that the whole aspect of the character with this mage, you know, where like, oh, I, I want to do I, the autopsies and like that whole aspect of she's the reason we have to kill her and do this investigation. It sets things up for Siri in the future. There's that through line there. Right. And I, you know, I don't, at this point, Geralt and Siri, I don't think have even met mm-hmm. in the storyline. Right. So it's a little bit of foreshadowing of like, Geralt really wants to save Renfrey. Like, Hey, don't, don't push it. Just leave. Right. If you leave, then there won't I won't have to make a decision. But if you go past this point, then there's no turning back. And I'm going to have to stop you from slaughtering the entire town. Right. Or killing the mage or, you know, going that next step. And one of the things that stands out to me based off of that regard is Geralt does he does what he has to do to protect the most people. And he winds up this affects him for the rest of his life. People refer to him as the Butcher of Blaviken from having to kill this band of bandits in this town, including Renfrey. He made what was the right, the ethical choice, and it wound up just reflecting negatively on him for all time. And that is what is so interesting about the Witcher universe. John, you mentioned who's the monsters in the Witcher universe. It's usually not always, well, not usually, it's not always the monsters. Mm -hmm. And this story does just a great job of pointing that out it's kind of like it's kind of like uh the walking dead where you know the zombies are all around and they're a problem but the real problem are the people yeah <laughs> like they're the ones that are they're the ones that you have to watch out for that mayor man <laughs> yes another character that really stood out to me was borch three jack draws he was from the bounds of reason story i don't want to go into him because that would reveal the big hook at the end of the story but he was just a really interesting adventurer and they did something really interesting with this character and I really appreciated him. What a terrible thing to bring up, but I can't say anything about it. <laughs> Both of you mentioned Geralt in your list. 
what makes this protagonist such an interesting character? I like him too. I figured we'd talk about him, so I didn't add him on my list. But I mean, if Geralt wasn't an interesting character, The Witcher wouldn't have five books, three video games, one season on TV, and another season coming out soon. So what stands out about the titular character? I think I think one of the big things is that he has this moral compass that while it might not be easy to necessarily for all the other people in the world to see like what that is um, or make sense of that from the reader's perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Like he can see the good in the supposedly bad people and he can see the bad in the supposedly good people. Uh, And he's kind of that almost like he's able to get through the surface that other people can't see. Uh, and then react to that and try to protect whatever it is that he thinks should be the good, right? And so I think that's one of the things that's really interesting to me about him anyway. The Witcher's not supposed to have feelings, but he is very much a white knight. Oh, yes. Well, you know, he is, by his own accord, tries to be as neutral as he possibly can. Right. The whole like, you know, and like Vesemir tells it to him all the time. You hear people talk to him all the time. Don't get involved. Don't do it. Right. Go in, get your coin, get out. Right. That's like the Witcher's motto. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's all about the money. I have a job. I'm here to kill this thing. And you see him, you see Geralt like try and do that so many times. And he just <laughs> can't like to a fault. And like, you know, where he like you know he drops the f bomb like oh like all right i guess i gotta go do this right yeah. so that like duality where like he knows who he is deep inside right mm-hmm. and who he should but what society sees him as and then like how like they all just hate him and see him as a monster even though he is helping kill and protect them and then despite that he will still usually go above and beyond to protect the people that hate him so that aspect of him i really like i think it's an interesting dynamic when thrown into this world that you know makes him able to straddle both lines of humanity and the non-humans with like the dwarfs and the elves yeah. right because it's a very politically charged world between humans and non-humans and Geralt gets to walk that line between both of those areas and he does it in a way and the, the games do a great job of this where like look just because I'm not a human doesn't mean that I'm going to side with the dwarves or side with the elves right he's very much like you know look everybody has stopped being stupid, <laughs> right? Yes. Like death is dumb no matter what. If you guys would just like grow up, right? So he's kind of the adult in the room. And I, you know, I just like that aspect of it. We've spent a significant amount of time now talking about three books in the Witcher series. We talked primarily about the two collections of short stories. John, is it fair to say that you hate the novels with a fiery passion? No, it is not fair to say that. (laughs) What? Why would you say that? I love the novels, right? I think that I really like the short story format. And maybe it's just I've been having a harder time getting through the main storyline books. Um, I think where, you know, the books excel is when they really focus more on the characters and things get muddy when you start 
digging into the world building aspect, right? When you're digging into like, you know, a little bit more of the political items behind the scenes, it gets a little muddier and a little harder to follow. Um, but like those short stories were so snappy and so, you know, poignant that, and those characters, it's still good enough. We're like, Oh, this is kind of organization. Then boom, you hit a really cool part and it just propels you forward. You make an interesting point about the world building, world building being muddy to follow. I've read three books. I've watched the show and I've played a good chunk of Witcher one and Witcher three. I have no idea that like the political, like the landscape, I don't know the names of kingdoms. Like I know that Fultus was a king. I know that Redania was a kingdom. I know that uh, I think Tamaria was a kingdom and like, it's just all this big huddled mess to me. Maybe I'm just an idiot. No, I so I, I was thinking about this, like if it wasn't for the game, I wouldn't understand like on a map how these things are organized together, other than well, Nilfgaard's from the south, everybody else are the northern area. Uh <clears throat> and so I wouldn't have I like I wouldn't have understood that without like the game map showing you that. But even then today, like the parts I was reading was talking about Kovir and Povis, and it's just like I have no idea where that is. <laughs> like, you know, you kind of almost get a little uh, uh, spoiled by the fact that Tolkien was like a huge map dude <laughs> yeah. and drew maps of everything. And, you know, Sapkowski probably isn't like that. You know, he doesn't see things visually like that. And I probably, if I was creating a world, probably wouldn't be able to draw a, an exact map of where all the kingdoms and everything were in the land masses because my mind just doesn't really work that way well if you can't draw a map of it how can you write about it how are you going to relate to me where kingdom a ends kingdom b begins kingdom yeah. c starts like you just refer to it a bunch of times and hope it all makes sense <laughs> no. well to me it doesn't make sense <laughs> yeah i can i know i can i can understand that and john I think part of the problem is it's very easy descriptively to know who the nilf guardians are mm-hmm. right the black guard you know the, there's a very good descriptive nature of who the Nilf guardians are everybody else gets kind of bundled into their own mass and you lose that Redania versus Tamaria versus you know all, you know Skellige is, is mm-hmm. you know off in the Isles they're the Vikings they're, that's easy enough right <laughs> but everybody else kind of you lose that distinction of what makes these people different so then how do I know who Foltis is versus you know uh, Radovid and why do they have those distinctions the game does a better job of that I think just because you're slowing down um, but in the books it's hard to pick that up and especially when you start to get into like the sorcerers which is big in where I'm at in the books and I'm like oh man these names I don't know who that guy is to that guy I gotta go back and remember who yeah. this is and you know at one point you're at this big dinner party and they're talking about all the people and I feel like it was just an excuse for <laughs> you know the author to basically say let me write about how these ladies don't like to wear clothes how can I see their <laughs> clothes be revealed I'm like okay this is cool I like Geralt in the fish out of water scenario and what you're doing but you could move it along and I don't have to have this big huge uh, like weird name area thing. And John, if I can summarize your points, you really like the short story format and you believe that the books excel when they focus more on the characters and less on the world building. Yes. Burns, your rebuttal. I mean, I think there's a lot of good points to that. I I think it seems like it's, it's his 
his whole thing is that he he's very character focused um, and that the whole story is going to be told through the lens of the characters. And it's interesting because especially in the early books, it is a very small set of characters that you get to see the world through, um, like mostly at the beginning, just Geralt and then Geralt and Siri and then Geralt and Siri and Yennefer. Uh, and then as like they get past the three that we're talking about today, you start to see other little bits from other people's perspectives. Uh, and it's interesting when that starts to widen out a little bit more, you do maybe get a little bit of an understanding of the grander world outside of just Geralt's story. Um, out of those three books, I really liked the sort of destiny. I think it's the best book of the three. Uh, I, think, I agree, and I don't think it's particularly close, John. I would agree. But uh, I think in general, I really enjoyed all of the books. Uh, to me, they're really good, what I wanted to call popcorn fiction. Uh, like some of the other things, like I would say Tolkien, uh, Sanderson, those are like, I'm sitting down for a meal. It takes time to digest that stuff. Um, but the Witcher is like popcorn. I'm just, mop, 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 you know, and I think part of that is also the structure. I mean, it's a very reader friendly structure, lots of breaking points throughout all of the chapters. Um, the first three novel, oh, even the short stories have breaking points in between them. So you can get this little chunk, this little vignette. I can take a break if I want to, or I can go on to the next vignette and the next vignette until I get to the end of the story. Uh, the chapters are very much the same. The first three books are seven chapters only. Like the structure is always seven chapters. I don't know why he chose that. The last two books are 11 chapters. Hmm. I don't know why he chose that either. Uh, it, Big there's, fan of uh, prime numbers. Apparently there's got to be something to that. And, and maybe if I added up all the sections in each chapter, that's like 13 or something like, I don't know. Uh, but I, it's very reader friendly. It's, it's, it reminds me a little bit of like Dan Brown. If you've ever read any Dan Brown and how it's just like the chapters are like two pages. <laughs> it's just like, Hey, you can take a break whenever the hell you want, but I hope that you really like it and keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. I can't stop Dan. I can't stop. Exactly. exactly. And, and so I think, I think that's kind of what it was going for with that also. And the other thing I'm curious about, um, is I wonder how much of this like in the books that struggle, we struggle with a little bit more. I wonder how much of that is the translators maybe not as effective as the books where it goes really well. Uh, because, you know, there's that other aspect of it that we don't really have a look behind unless you know, one of us learns how to read po Polish and <laughs> goes back and reads through the original book. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to put that much time into this podcast. I apologize, Tom. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that's part of it is some of that might get a little lost in the translating of it um, with with depending upon the different books, um, which I think is, you know, it is it is it is what it is. Um, I do think that, you know, and I know we're only talking about the first novel and then the two short stories. I do think the novels get better after the first one, um, especially I think the second one is really good. Um, and I think even after that, it, it continues to it continues to build from there. Uh, it does take some like little side steps here and there on some other different pieces of the story um, that usually are there for a reason. Like I like I think one of the things I said because you were talking about how things kind of seem to be really split up. I think especially in the novels, it's it's it is almost taking like that Tarantino approach of it's like, I'm telling you the bits of the story that are important to know when they're important to know whether they're happening at the same time or incongruently. And I think there's a lot less of the whole time skipping in the novels than there was in the short stories. Uh, 
But I think it's very much like, okay, you need to know what's going on here now. So I'm going to tell you this now. Then I'm going to jump back to this stuff because knowing that information, it's going to help you with moving forward through this or contextualizing like what's happening with these characters because you know what happened with this character. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think that's the thought behind it. It works better in some instances than others. I think it's I think it is better when it's like we're just following this line through from start to finish without taking too many of those dalliances off into other times or other people. Um, but sometimes you need a break from those things, too. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. I'm liking it so far. I'm looking forward to finishing it through. I'm glad you guys are enjoying the books. I thought this was kind of a funny anecdote. I did not care for The Last Wish when <laughs> I first read it. Uh, and then the second time I read it, being more familiar, having played some of the games and having read this and read the comics, I liked it a lot better the second time through. I'm looking forward into diving into the rest of the novels. We're going to move on with a charisma check. Hey, lovers out there, grab your D20s because it's time for Tom Awesome's Charisma Check. Let's get it on. Let's get it on. For Charisma Check today, we are going to discuss the current state of the fantasy novel adaptations into TV and cinema. We're going to check a D20 to determine how sexy fantasy TV and movies are. This could include Dune, Wheel of Time, Lord of Rings, The Sandman, and more. John, this is your first time doing Charisma Check. Are you ready for this? Are you ready for the challenge? <laughs> I'm ready for the challenge of the Charisma Check. All right, let's do this. I mean, first, you know, we got to decide what numbers are good here, right? Is it high? Is it low? Right? So we're saying that if it's a high number, that thing has a good charisma, or I have to have a high charisma to beat that item check. So if that's the case, then I'm saying 18. Right? 18. We got, 18. We got Wheel of Time. Like, look, you're hitting all of the thing. Look, it's it's nostalgia, right? Well, you know, when I had all the free time in the world and I could read and read and read, you're hitting Wheel of Time. You're getting a new Lord of the Rings show, right? And I'm, you know, got my fingers crossed for. And you got Witcher TV stuff, and not just like the TV show, but the anime was awesome. If you haven't watched that one about Vesemir, that was really cool, right? So. I love all this stuff. I'm excited. I haven't watched Dune yet, but I'm excited to watch it. Right. And like, I love Sandman. So even those ones you just named, the big top of the line ones, super excited for all those um, to the point where I hope that the 18 isn't, you know, it's, it's definitely my excitement levels that high. I just hope I don't get disappointed when I start actually watching a lot of this content. <laughs> well, right. 18 is like as high as you can go as a level one character. I'm going to come in next. I am, significantly lower. I took kind of what I thought was a middle-of-the-road approach. I come in at an 11. I am glad that these iconic properties are getting another iteration or a new way to tell the story, a new way to expose an audience. I've never read Dune. I've never read Wheel of Time. I've had enough exposure to Lord of the Rings, I think, in my life. <laughs> I've never read The Sandman. So a lot of these are going to be new experiences for me. There's a degree of excitement there. Like I'm glad these things are getting a new way to tell the story, but boy, an 18... I came in at 11, which in D&D terms is like the standard score for a human being. I would put these these fantasy adaptations right at a common level. Like I, I'm glad they exist. Maybe I'll maybe probably see them. Maybe probably. Maybe Bern probably. Bernsey, where do you come in on the scale? Closer uh, to John or closer to me? Uh, closer to John. Over John. I got a 19 on this. Over John. 19? Yeah. Are you insane? Yeah. Like, 
A D20 would be a critical hit. Like, yeah. You're that close. You're this, that excited for these fantasy adaptations. This is a almost hardcore charisma caster going at things here. Uh, love or hate Game of Thrones and how that show evolved and ended, I think, I mean, it definitely was the impetus for a lot of these other fantasy, like, fantasy worlds to get their chance and get their chance at the limelight uh, as much as for all these other companies other than HBO to try to make as much money off of it as possible. Well, it is fair to say that none of these would get a big budget adaptation without Game of Thrones. Right. And I mean, I know people are critical of the ending. I didn't think it was that bad, but like the rocket ship that that show became taking a fan, a hardcore fantasy novel series and bringing it so mainstream was just fascinating to behold. And I mean, I think it's it's meant lots of sales for the books. Uh, it's lot it's made for lots of sales for other fantasy books, other fantasy like stories. And so I think it's it's like a rising tide lifts all ships. Uh, I'm super excited. I've seen the first two episodes of Wheel of Time. I really like it. Uh, it's the type of thing where you know if you're a hardcore fan of certain things and you're going in with an axe to grind, thinking that you're going to hate it, you're probably going to find things to hate. Uh, but I think it's really well done so far. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, Dune was freaking amazing. And this is coming from somebody who read Dune, thought the book was was fine. It was good. Uh, I have some friends that were like hardcore fans of Dune, have seen like every iteration of Dune that was released. The Fincher movie, the short, the, the uh, um, it wasn't a TV show, but like the- It was a miniseries. Miniseries, yes. Uh, and just- it wasn't right. It wasn't quite right. It wasn't quite right. And then the copium that they go through is like, well, it wasn't that bad, though. You know, there's a little bit of this that was really good. And they, they did a good job of making the Fremen look pretty cool. And, you know, but but this, like, for all my friends that love Dune, like, loved the movie. Like, just loved the movie. And they did a really good job of bringing it to life. I think we're, we're hitting that, that level where CG is good enough now and cheap enough that you can make... Some of this stuff that's very fantastical look really good. Like um, The Last Starfighter. Exactly. Death Blossom, yo. Death yeah, Blossom. right? <laughs> well, I'm glad that there's some good stuff coming. I'm glad that you guys and nerd pop culture in general are excited about it. I guess my point would more that I'd be more excited for some killer new IP. Like something that takes us by surprise, like a Horizon Zero Dawn, not taking Aloy's story and putting it onto a screen, but something like that, something that we didn't expect and that just completely caught us off guard. It's tough to do that, though, right? Look, this, this these are big-budget deals. you got to have some familiarity to back it. you got to have the hype. Which studio is going to say, hmm, you know what? I want the next Game of Thrones, but I'm going to do it with like this thing that no one has ever heard of. No. They're going to do it based upon, like, ah, Lord of the Rings. People know about that thing, mm -hmm. right? I've heard about that. Wheel of Time, that sounds familiar. Oh, there's this track record of they've sold X million number of books, or they have this, you know, history behind it. So I think it's going to be really hard to find that original IP, right? And I think what we're going to be looking at is more things coming out where it's your scenario, Tom, where... I've kind of heard of those things, but I've never read them, so I'm excited about getting to experience that world that all my friends have talked about. Because when they were reading Wheel of Time, I was reading book three of, you know, Game of Thrones. The fascinating thing about Charisma Check to me, especially talking about it with you, Burns, I always come out of it feeling like I was wrong. Like I just came in <laughs> with the wrong perception, Clean the wrong score. So uh, congratulations, you guys. I was wrong. 
Let's watch all this awesome stuff, and that's and then let's talk about it on Outside is Overrated and the Outside is Overrated Discord. So, I've been having some serious back problems recently, man. You know, maybe it's carrying two swords, hundreds of pounds of food, <laughs> all the oils and potions I need to keep enemies at bay. I'm not sure what it exactly is, but my back is killing me. Any suggestions on where a Witcher fan in training can go to get fixed up? First question, do you have any broken bones? No. <laughs> good, good. We're, uh, we're on the right track here. John, you should check out Premier Health. They have solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident, and Witcher-related injuries, and more. We suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. Our next topic is The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. John, you believe this is the greatest game of all time. That's not hyperbole. That is your true belief of this game. For Joey and I, it was the first time we've ever played it. This game was developed by CD Projekt Red, released May 18th of 2015, a Metacritic score of 92. I'll give a brief description of the game and then we will jump in and break down every possible aspect of it until the sun comes up. <laughs> this game follows Geralt as he searches for Ciri. Ciri is being pursued by a spectral entity called the Wild Hunt. You explore the world, complete quests, earn XP, and level up. You find yourself battling armies of humans and swarms of monsters. Occasionally, the action is broken up as you take control of Ciri. I thought we could start our discussion by talking about some of our favorite RPGs. I think... It's fair to say that this is our combined favorite genre, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's CRPG, JRPG, Action RPG, Tactical RPG, or MMOs. Like, we all just love, love, love this genre. Let, this has already been a longer show than I anticipated, so maybe let's each pick our favorite, favorite RPG and just give a quick summation of why it stands out for us so much. I'm going to begin because this is my show. I'm the hero. Final Fantasy Tactics is my favorite game and my favorite RPG. It's just a great combination of gameplay, game mechanics, story, and art style that has me endlessly charmed. It tells a, it tells a story of class disparity and uh, what's going on behind the scenes in this big war that's happening and how these unlikely heroes are trying to just do the right thing, basically. And I could play this game over and over and over again. It literally never gets old for me. John, do you believe The Witcher 3 is the greatest game of all time? Is that all you want to talk about here? Do you want to give a little depth to your love of RPGs? So, it is the greatest game of all time, right? <laughs> and it didn't I didn't add it on my list because that's what we're talking about here. Um I mean, if you you know, the next in line right below that is going to be Final Fantasy 6, right? And what you will find uh for games that I like as characters usually come first, I will forego clunky gameplay if it's got a great story, if it's got, you know, uh, just great characters and great character interactions, right? I'm, look, video games to me have always been like a storytelling media. So, like, Final Fantasy VI nails the characters, and it is one of the best ensemble casts in a video game. Right, has one of the best endings to me for an ensemble cast in a video game, and is 
I can't think of another game that does let's destroy the entire world and make <laughs> you again heist, let's get the party together, do that in such a way that like it's just so exciting and emotional and and I love and then you know you have the Esper system which has history where it's bringing hats the you know materia systems first like you know gleam right so it's the you know precursor to Final Fantasy 7 and just you know active time battle which is great and all the crazy awesome things like suplexing a train and ultros <laughs> yeah. and kefka as one of like the most awesome villains right and to take like 16 bit super nintendo and like i am like i am hearing kefka's laugh in <laughs> my ears right now like just sticks with you and I could just like as I'm talking about I could pop so many different scenes out from like you know the water being poisoned to like General Sid standing up to you know Kefka like all these great great moments of that game love it I mean I love Final Fantasy 6 as well um, but tied with that for one of my favorite RPGs of all time is Persona 4 Golden and I think it's for some of the same reasons. Uh, with Persona 4 Golden, the characters, I think, are amazing. Uh, you just, you really get to know them, and you really get to sort of understand, you know, because they're teenagers, so there's the teenage angst and the things that they're struggling with as a developing human being. Uh, and, and then also they have to fight this grand metaphysical battle, you know, by going through the TV into this <laughs> other world and fight demons. I mean... You know, typical day in, in a high schooler's life. Uh, and, and, and so I think the fascinating thing to me about Persona 4 Golden is how all of the systems and everything of the game kind of work together. So you learn more about the characters, which then makes you level up your social link with those characters, which then makes you them better at fighting in battles alongside of you. And at the same time means that you're able to take the um, personas, which is, you know, similar to your summons in a lot of Final Fantasy games. They're stronger if they're of the type of the person that you've built that relationship with. And it's like, it's like how everything kind of revolves around the, the, all the systems wrap up to make the game better and to, to sort of to make that all this homogenous experience, experience that, yeah, I want to learn more about the story. But while I'm doing that, I'm also making me better statistically in the game. And which I think is phenomenal. And it's so interesting how that works. Um, and, you know, similar to you, John, I'm the same way. Like the characters, if the characters are amazing, I can get through anything else uh, in a game. But even that being said, like if everything else in the game is fantastic as well, and it's all wrapped up with those characters, it's it's even it's even better for me. So. So, yeah, that's why I would say that that is is up there for me as well. I feel very similarly. When we conceived our first child, Phoenix and I did have a discussion about Ramza and whether or not it would be on the list of names for boys. <laughs> she considered it. Uh, hearing how you guys both love character-driven stories, it's I feel the exact same way. It's interesting to me that I got so into Dragon's Dogma, which wasn't it didn't have mm -hmm. like any character to it. The narrative wasn't all that interesting. The systems weren't were wonky. That. Yeah. There were elements of it that were super frustrating, but for some reason that game just clicked for me and I really enjoyed my time with that. I think a lot of it is like the combat systems are really good 
And like the gameplay of that game, I think, even though there's some jank to it, but then again, any open world game, there's there's jank to that. Uh, I think that's a lot of what it was. And, and it's like, that was compelling. I think the overall world is interesting and you're trying to see like what it all means. You know, like, why did the dragon rip out your heart? <laughs> you know? and, and so what is that all? So I think it, it does a good job of creating compelling questions. Um, but yes, I don't think from a character standpoint, uh, no, none of them are really memorable <laughs> in any way, shape or form. Sure. And The Witcher, our first impressions of Geralt's tale in The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. I struggled to get into this game early on. Like, early on, I came into this game burdened with expectations. Like, I knew that Hmm. some people considered it the greatest game of all time. John, I have a lot of respect for your taste in video games, and I knew your affinity for this. So, the bar was really high coming in. And early on, I'm like, hee hee, I I don't know how this reaches that level for people. I got there eventually. But I was just wondering if you guys had similar struggles in the beginning of the game trying to kind of get into it. John, you think that there was a steep learning curve to this game? Yeah, you know, when you jump into White Orchard and you're in that starting area, the combat is extremely unforgiving, right? And it's clunky, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're not, you know, you have to kind of figure out that rhythm of timing. And if this was, if this was your first Witcher game extremely clunky look the combat has always been clunky if you played witcher one where you're like clicking like the mouse button on the icon to get Geralt to swing and it's like so it's always been a little bit clunky and that like level of like oh okay like why is everything kicking my butt oh well you got to do these potions then if i read these books then i know i can go into the bestiary and i can see what potions and bombs and read about the tactics so like oh i actually and then that's when it like really clicked and was it went from frustration to excitement where it's like oh i actually have to be a witcher it's not just me like okay, cool, like, this guy's weak to fire, so I'm going to equip my fire sword and go in and beat him because I see he's blue, and I know blue is ice. Like, oh, what is that thing? It looks like it's probably undead, so it's probably a necrophage. Let me go look at my bestiary area. Oh, 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 that's a that's a drowner. That's a ghoul. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't have that bomb I need, but I have this thing, right? So I'm going to, like, equip these oils and do all that stuff. And it, it gets even better, right, once you, like, do that you understand that and then put it on death march so then the combat is extremely unforgiving and that's how i played the game this time around right having played it on pc with like mods like quality of life mods right it was like ah oh, loot everything and there's no weight restrictions and all this sort of fun stuff and now <laughs> i'm playing on ps5 right and on death march and i'm like oh i gotta click on everything to loot and it's annoying but the the like every time i've died it's been because I messed up, right? Because like, uh, I'm just rolling around too much and I'm not deflecting. I'm not do- being smart. I didn't put my oils on. I wasn't paying attention to where I was. I wasn't using my Witcher sense to like look around the area and see where things are. So yes, steep learning curve. But once you hit it, it clicks. I was so frustrated early on in this game because I was dying so much. I couldn't afford water so I couldn't heal myself. <laughs> It, and the combat is very different. It 
it doesn't compare to something like a Souls game, which has such like an intuitive feel to the combat. Like when you play Bloodborne specifically, the combat just feels right, and I don't know how they nailed that aesthetic, but it just feels right. And in this game, it's just so different because it's more agile. It's closer to Spider-Man 2018 than it is to say a Souls game because part of the core action is dodging out of the way of your enemies. Bernsey, what was your first feeling coming back to this game the second time playing it? Yeah, I mean, the first time I played it, I like I really got into exploring the world, like 100% of the first area. Uh, and then basically I fell away from it just because of other games or whatnot. I don't remember what was going on in 2016 when I was playing it. Knowing you, it was probably paralysis by open world. That is because it was basically after I got into the open area uh, when it widened out even further, um, you know, that... Yeah, I think that was a lot of it, probably, too. Um, coming back, so I remember playing it the first time and hearing a lot of people talk about the controls and how, like, combat's clunky and everything like that. And I remember the first time I played it, I was like, eh, you know, it's not that bad. Like, it, it, it's got its jank, but it's not bad. Uh, going back to it now, I definitely felt that a lot more. Like, having played Bloodborne recently... And how, like, just smooth the combat feels for that. I was like, okay, this is rough. And then also then having played, like, um, Ghosts of Tsushima recently also. Like, just collecting herbs and stuff like that. You're doing some of that same stuff in that game. But it's like, you can do that on your horse. You can easily jump off your horse and get on your horse. And, like, the combat is you have these stances that you have to move through and you're able to kind of quickly move through them, you know? Uh, and whereas this, it's 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 not <laughs> as, as clear. I will say I do think The Witcher 3, like the lock-on system is better than what it is in like Ghost of Tsushima. Um, but I, I still think there's like, there's like that level of jank. And, and I do know that like I hit a wall at one point uh, where... I, it was like a random Witcher contract that I just couldn't beat. I, I fought the thing like seven times, I think, and just couldn't beat it. Uh, and, and then I like realized, oh, I have like seven uh, activity points that I haven't spent yet. I should do that and like level it into a couple of these things. And it's like, oh, okay. Once I make made made it so that the potions lasted longer and my Ard was stronger, I like rolled through the thing at that point. So, Burns, you you. You love RPGs. Uh huh. Why are you not spending your points at level up? Uh, cause a lot of it's like I don't really know what I want, and so sometimes it's just like, uh, sometimes it's just like, oh well, uh, I don't know what I really need right now, so I'll just wait until I know what I need, kind of thing. Uh, which has helped me a couple points. Like one time, it's like, okay, I really don't want to have to fight through this thing. And I was like, oh, I have two spare points. I'm going to put it into delusion and then just get out of this by talking my way out of it uh, or manipulating the person person out of it. Uh, and so, so sometimes it's beneficial. A lot of the times, though, I just don't realize. Like it'll say on screen, you get one activity point or whatever. And I know where the icon is and I'll notice it, but I just won't like fully compute because it's like i'm running to this question mark i need to see what's going on over here uh and i could do that later (laughs) but it pops up in your screen it says you have one ability point to spend you don't immediately go into the menu and spend that skill point no no because i'm in the middle of running to this question mark instead or i'm in the middle of like i'm gonna go talk to this person or or i'm gonna play gwent (laughs) like it's 
It's that there's more important things than leveling myself up. How are we friends? Like, this is, that is a non-negotiable thing for me. Like, I drop literally everything. It's like, I could be holding Siri by the wrist on, like, the edge of a cliff. It's like, oh, well, good luck. I'm going to go beef up my potions. John, will you please tell Joey that he's insane? You are a little bit insane because, you know, it takes two seconds and the world pauses. I know. When you go into the menu, right? <laughs> I mean, I do get, though, like, there is – there's a little bit of analysis by paralysis with the the skill system, right? Although I feel like they do a good job of saying, well, you're going to do row one, right? Each It's tiered off, mm-hmm. right? But you got to go in there and you got to kind of read everything and, and kind of, like – when you're starting it for the first time, you don't know if you're like, am I going to be like a fighter? Am I going to like just be like Potion Man or am I going to be like a mage and casting spells? You have no idea what you're going to do. So you're kind of like, I don't want to like go down this path. And then I wasted all my points, but this thing looks cool, right? So like coming into it like another time, like it's easy for me to say, well, I know how to make the Uber build. I'm going to go down here and like make my potions all awesome and do all these things in the green tree. Cause that's where I like to be. I put a little bit in red, a little bit in green and I'm awesome. I, I'm just drinking potions left and right. Right. Cause it makes it super awesome. That's how I just have always rolled. But like, you don't know that until you've played the game and gone through and you don't know that it's actually pretty easy to respect. Right. You just buy a potion. Right. Mm-hmm. Because then the first time you see that potion, it's a thousand gold. And you're at that point, you're like a thousand gold. <laughs> I got to sell like 500 crappy swords <laughs> to get a thousand gold. And I'm trying to buy Gwent cards here. Right. Because <laughs> that's the real important thing is I got to finish off my Gwent deck. Exactly. That, that Those are the important things. Uh, and exploring the world. Like, I, I think. The world is amazing to explore and live in. Like, even White Orchard. Like, thankfully, it's, like, shut down into this small area. But, like, coming back into the game again, it was just like, okay, I remember how fun it is to just start at this spot in the map, circle around all these question marks and see what's there and kill the stuff, uh, and then and then head back to town when I need to. Uh, like, it's just, I don't know. that That loop, you get into that loop early, and you see what that is, and you just, like... I, it's I just like I start running the hamster wheel and I just want to keep running, you know. Uh, nothing's gonna stop me from keeping keeping that hamster wheel going. The the question mark too of like I don't know if this is a, a monster's nest. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a quest. I don't know if this is just gonna be a bandit camp. And even if it is, awesome. Let's kill these bandits, right? Yeah. And I love the fact that they're the world is barren not barren but sparse in mm-hmm. between those question marks and when you open that map it makes you seem like oh, that question mark is way over there and you start running and you're there in like three minutes mm-hmm. but it makes you have that feeling of like i really traveled the world and i've seen so much right and it's daunting when you open up that new area and you're like there's five million question marks here <laughs> but then you play for an hour and you've made that connection and that loop and it's just cool to see oh i i nailed all those things that was fun is that where this game clicked for all three of us is exploring the world? It's certainly where the game got its hooks into me. It was 10, 15 hours in when I was exploring points of interest in Valen. It's like, oh, this is this is awesome. Every single one of these has some sort of reward. I'm getting a new crafting recipe. I'm getting a new potion formula. I'm getting new... Each one of these little bite-sized pieces of content has a reward that I want. So I want to touch every single one of these. Oh, this one's guarded by a monster that's 15 levels too high. I... This one won't be grayed out right now. Is that where the game got its hooks into both of you? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was the majority of it. And it's just like exploring the new area, seeing what this question mark is. What is it that I'm going to find here? Uh, what loot am I going to find here? Like, I think that's the other thing. That is the one thing where I could be holding, like Ciri's holding on by one arm on a cliff. But there's two treasure chests over here. I'm going to go grab these first. I'll pull you up after that. That's the one thing that stops uh, for me, uh, like any sort of progression. Uh, I think the other thing, though, other than exploration, that really got me invested um, were the first couple of quest lines that you can fall down in Velen with uh, the Bloody Baron, that whole quest line, and then Kira Metz. Uh, meeting her and going through like her, her sort of story. I think those two things like are very different stories, but just like grabbed me and wanted me to sort of interact with them and see where it was going. Uh, Cause I think one of the things, the good things that they really do with this is you don't necessarily see where everything is going. Uh, you have an idea of what's going to happen, but then it's something kind of completely different develops. Uh, and I think that's what's fascinating about it. And it's like, exploration through the world as well as exploration through a story to sort of find like what is this all about and what does this all mean uh which i think it does so fantastically well especially in those first couple of like main story quest lines that you fall down it's interesting to me that you brought up the kira met storyline because i was on both ends of the spectrum in this i think the first stage of that quest you're going through this long dark dungeon and I didn't have any healing, so like this was really super duper frustrating. I'd have my three healing potions, then I'd have to meditate. I was worried that I was going to run out of Alkahest and I wouldn't be able to do potions anymore. I couldn't afford any more food or water. I'm like, am I going to be able to get through this quest? Or like, is my playthrough of The Witcher 3 literally going to end in this <laughs> dark cave? And I managed to get through that first phase, and then it completely turned. I By the end of that quest line, I loved that quest line. I loved that adventure. I loved going to the tower and exploring it, and then sort of the prologue with it. I just, the entire game for me turned just in that quest line. I thought that was really interesting. A combination of that quest line and exploring the world. John, you like saying things. <laughs> Dude, especially about The Witcher. Uh, you know, boss battles in this game, right? I mean, they're essentially Witcher contracts. Mm -hmm. And like that first Griffin fight where it kind of starts to lay that groundwork and you see that build on later. But like, I love how they do that within, you know, they, they're bringing you into like, this is what it's like to be a Witcher, right? This is how we fight things. We got to get this sort of route and we got to get this thing. So I love that building. And then I just, again, love that fight. The little bit of scriptedness of it where it flies away and you have to track it. And loved also the story building up around that monster. Why is this griffin so mad? Oh, well, they killed its mate. And, like, you know, that's why it's pissed off. So now it's got no mate and it's this old. All, like, love that sort of stuff. So that, you know, and then the one more question mark thing, which we talked about. And then really that the Bloody Baron quest line, right? It is so all over the place in the best way possible that like you're like not expect like look when you're you're getting through white orchard and at this point it is fairly like you know fantasy standard ah, i'm fighting a griffin like oh i'm gonna get your frying pan out of here for you lady right <laughs> you know it's it's you know oh let me fix these shrines for you let me go and kill these dogs it's very much like you know mmo quest fetch type stuff 
excellently done, right? And all the characters are great. And, like, you do see a lot of really great, like, cinematic kind of movements with the camera that they're starting to show you. But it all really, like, hit me when you start doing that bloody Baron quest line as the first you hit that one. And if, if you go right down that path and you, you start talking and going through that and like, it gets heavy fast, right? You know, domestic abuse, miscarriages, uh, you know, space glowing babies running across <laughs> in <new laughs> tournaments, you know, right. Which that is the weirdest thing, the space glow baby, but like that. And then like, that level of character building between not only of like the side character, the bloody Baron and his daughter and his wife, but also how Geralt interacts with them, how the three witches play into that and their overall connection to the story. And and that aspect continues through the entire game where the whole point is Geralt's just trying to find his daughter Right. And now this guy who's having who's just I love my daughter so much. I'm trying to find her is having to go and help this jerk face who was like the worst person ever trying to like, uh, I just got to put this aside because I got to get this information. So I'm going to help this jerk find his wife and daughter that he's pushed away from his home. Right. To like horrible ends and having to meet the daughter and oh. Just so good on every aspect of it. And then to be Geralt in the middle of it and know what he's going through and why he's trying to do this, so good. And every main quest line as it progresses continues along that train, right? I love, you know, you start to get into Novigrad and the stuff with Dandelion. It's all fantastic. And I'll, I'll stop there because I don't want to, because I know you guys haven't finished, right? But that level of storytelling, right, and world building with that huge loved it what i think is fascinating about their quest structure in this game is these main story quests are very very long the bloody baron quest is very long the karamets quest line is pretty long the dandelion stuff is really long but they're broken up into these micro stages so you can do one phase of this quest and then you can go explore a little bit or you can go do a witcher contract or you can do a couple more phases of it and then something else unlocks and you can go on this other diversionary path it's so fascinating to me that they were able to so seamlessly break these long quests into bite-sized mm -hmm. chunks so that you could pursue them if you wanted to, but you could also take a little break, go do some other fun stuff on the side. And that, uh, it, both of you guys gravitate towards the Bloody Baron story quest. I like the Kira Metz one first because I think I did, I did that one first. That's just the one that I stumbled into. Another thing that I thought that was interesting about the quest structure is sometimes you can stumble in at a different phase. Like with the Bloody Baron quest, at one point you're supposed to find some statues that lead to a path where something happens and it leads you to another thing. And I was just out exploring the world and I like triggered something further down in that quest line. So all those intermediary steps were crossed out and it's like, oh, all right, well, I guess I'm on Bloody Baron at this stage now. All right, <laughs> let's go. Let's see what's up with these crones. Oh, wow. Interesting. I, yeah, so, you can you can miss huge sections of the world if you do things in certain order, and like you know, that's another part of this game that I think you know is is you know it does so well. You know, uh, we all we've talked about Dragon Age Origins before. We've talked about you know Bioware games, you know Mass Effect and everything, right? And the whole like your choices matter type of mentality. Well, most of the time it's pretty you know meh 
in those games. They matter, but it's not nuanced at all. It's all like, you didn't talk to this person, so you don't get to recruit them. Too bad, so sad. And The Witcher says, oh, well, you just kind of <laughs> said the half-jerky thing, right? And now <laughs> this person hates your guts because what you didn't know is three quests ago when you said the nice thing, that person was actually that guy's brother. And like, like that sort of interweaving of things happens in the game. And just your basic, you know, a lot of times it's not like game breaking. Mm-hmm. But what it is, is it shapes how your game flows, right? So that to me is one of the huge successes of The Witcher 3. And they built on that from 1 to 2 and really in 3 like hit that out of the park. So I did have a question and I don't know if this is delving too deep into spoilers, but I was just I was curious about this. What was the resolution of the Bloody Baron quest line for each of you? I don't think I've seen the true resolution. What happened for me was that he recovered his wife mm-hmm. and he went to seek help for her. Gotcha. John? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So did you have the full family reunion with the daughter as well? Uh, we were all at the swamp together. The daughter was there with the witch hunters. Uh, Bloody Baron was there. Wife was there. So yeah, they were, all of those characters were together. And then I let him go try to find help for her. Yeah. That, that was my breakdown too it's extremely sad right because now the daughter's like looped in like to this other group and she's like no you got to do your time with the witch hunters right so but yeah that's that's where i ended up what what did what where did you go yeah so somewhere in there um like it came up that the old so i don't know i don't know where the decision was but uh, somewhere along the way it was decided and she basically the the wife sacrificed herself in order to like help break the curse of the crones and then eventually, you know, dejected uh, the bloody Baron walks away and says he just needs time. And you go up to crow's nest or crow's peak or whatever the heck it's called. And he's just swinging from a tree, killed himself. And, uh, and yeah, that was, uh, so somewhere along the way, I didn't find the way to save her also, and uh, yeah, that happened. <laughs> so I, and I think we're, and, and again, that's where like a storyline you don't think that has impact on that has yeah. impact on. It. And I think it actually ties into what you actually do in regards to the heart of the tree. Yeah. That has an impact on that story. Oh, so because, you, because yeah. I released it, that mm-hmm. was then why she had to die and the bloody Baron died. Yes. Gotcha. Right? The sacrifice in one, right? Something's got to ah. give in the Witcher universe. So did you right? guys so, both kill the heart of the tree then? Can't recall. I think so. Yeah, because it was killing kids on top of the hill. I was like, nope, sorry, I don't trust you. Right. But I thought that was the lesser. You know, I was probably wrong. <laughs> I thought that was the lesser evil compared to the three crones and the power that they had. Um, which right. is why I allowed it to be released, but then that makes sense as to why that would then lead to that happening. So yeah, and interesting. The really and that sad was, thing. Yeah, the really I, sad thing. It, in your version, Bernsey, the kids get away. Tom, did you notice that when everybody shows up, there ain't no kids? Oh yeah. Oh, I noticed those kids got eaten. Yeah. All those kids, snacks, right? 
because of our decision to kill the heart of the tree. Well, that'll land me now. Thanks a lot, John. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Let's take a little time. Everybody play The Witcher. It's fun. (laughs) Fun and lighthearted. It's like The Legend of Zelda. (laughs) Guys, I want to say that this is like, you know, also probably like if you burn through White Orchard in like five, six hours, this is in the first like 10 hours of the game. This stuff Mm -hmm. starts happening. So it is like in the beginning, like just it gets better. And the side quests are written just as well. Right. Like, you know, the the werewolf with the the wife and the wife's sister. That's a great one. It always sticks with me. Uh, everything about Fike Island is fantastic. Um, and like, you know, the outcome of that, depending upon what you do and like the I don't want to spoil that one because that one's a big twist if you don't do things a certain way. So just amazing, amazing story. Let's take a little time and break this game down system by system. We'll start with the strengths and weaknesses of the combat system. We mentioned that combat is a little different and it feels a little bit weird. In combat, you have two attack buttons. You have a light attack and a heavy attack. You have a dodge button, which is crucial. And then you also have a jump button, which I don't know if it has a function in combat, but it sure got me whacked on the head a lot. (laughs) You also have a very short selection of spells, which functionally they're spells they're called signs in the witcher universe they're magical things that Geralt can do and you have a couple of items at your disposal as well and that's basically it those are your tools those are most of your tools for fighting enemies in the game there's also a whole alchemy system where you can brew potions I guess there's a lot more to combat that I can gloss over you can brew potions that can do anything from healing you to making your stamina regenerate more quickly so you can cast more spells to giving you more life to allowing you to breathe underwater there's also, oh, I'm missing one key system here, and it just completely... Points. Which points? Adrenaline points. Adrenaline points. As you're wailing on your enemies, this adrenaline meter will fill up, and that allows you to do more damage to your enemies. And I feel like there's even one more thing on top of this that I'm missing. Oils. Oil. Yeah, you can, prior to going into combat, you can brew oils, which you put on your different swords, either your steel sword for fighting humans or your... Uh, silver sword for fighting monsters and that will do extra damage against those certain enemy types so we have a pretty oh goodness what did i miss john (laughs) one you have you have a dodge but you also have an evade you have a roll right so if you're not using your roll never use that right so you can do that although all, all i do is dodge the quick dodge i like better than the roll uh the other thing you also can add uh, rune stones to all of your weapons, mm-hmm. right? So weapons and armor also have slots for rune stones that you can use, and you can also craft those rune stones, which then give you additional you know, fire attack, freezing, you know, stun, poison, whatever you'd like. So, how does this combat system resonate with us, Joey? I think you have a very important public service announcement that you'd like to make with your second bullet point. Would well, you like to lead us off? Well, yeah. Like, don't forget to spend your ability points because they do help <laughs> you progress through the game, as we talked about before. It's that... like when we were talking about cyberpunk, and you're like, "Yeah, once I started playing, like I built my character too, it got a lot easier." <laughs> yes. It happens. I mean, I, I get distracted with other things, you know, the, the shiny stuff. And then I just forget about the spreadsheet stuff I have to do. Um, I think the combat has enough strategy included in it to make it interesting. So like we talked about the dodging, the rolling, the parrying, uh, oils, decoctions, potions. Uh, you can only take so many potions. Otherwise, you 
you know, it's too toxic for you. So there's that like limitation there. Uh, so there's, there's with, with all of that stuff combined, it felt like there was always, there were always at least a couple of ways to approach a situation. Yeah, you know, and obviously it would make it easier if you had all of that stuff maximized. So you have the oil that's really good against them. You're using the signs that's really good against the the given monster. Make sure you're using the right sword. As uh, there were a couple of times where I'm just whacking away at this thing, and why am I only doing thirty damage? It's like, oh, I've got my uh, silver sword out, and this is not a beast, so I have to put my steel sword out. Now, know? how does that happen? Like, girl draws his sword as you approach enemies, and like he always draws the right sword. What were you doing? So I I don't know. Honestly, I do think once or twice, maybe if you already had another sword out, he doesn't draw a sword and he has that one or whatever. But there are a couple of fights where he's definitely whacking them with a sword that's not doing the right damage. Uh, sometimes it's been... It's hard to whack him off that way. It is. Some, it is really hard to, to whack him off. Uh, it, but anyway, I think there's, there's also sometimes where... Like, I'll draw a sword when I'm approaching a situation and not realize if this is a monster or not. Um, like, for instance, there's one instance where you're fighting this uh, this witcher that has been... Uh, oh, I just did that last night. That was cool. That's been, like, that's been like experimented on by this wizard. Uh, and, and so it's like you're fighting him and you're like, okay, the silver sword's not doing it. I have to actually use a steel sword against this guy. I wasn't sure because of all, like, the mutations that this thing had gone on past being a witcher and so i think that i think that stuff's really like interesting too is you're not 100 percent sure and i like that it gives you the option to choose which one to because i think there's a way you could turn that off so that if you just hit draw it'll draw whatever the sword is that you need in that situation i like having the to choose between the two um not me i wanted that choice made for me and i'm glad the game did it oh gotcha no i see i enjoy i enjoy it like having having that little bit of like uh yeah i need to be smart i need to take this out oh nope put that one out instead sometimes i hit the wrong one and it's just like oh, 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 oh. Geralt's just sort of flinging his arm back and forth putting the things back in this in the sheaths i did have instances where i was trying to switch swords for whatever reason mid-combat and like you press it once, you put it away, and then Carol starts punching. I'm like, yep. oh no! Oh yeah! And then like yeah. I'm so busy trying to wail away, and like I hit to draw the sword, and then I'm immediately hitting attack. I was like, oh, just punch, punch, punch. Not effective. <laughs> Burns, we'll come back to your last point in just a minute, John. I'm going to give my impressions of the combat system, and then you can tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> I thought the dodge system was very interesting, and it gives The Witcher its own feel, and I view that as mostly a positive. I thought the signs were super duper fun. I loved using Igni. Like, I loved lighting dudes on fire. No. What? You liked making things burn? No. So satisfying. <laughs> so satisfying. One of the biggest drawbacks I found was that it was sometimes, or even oftentimes, hard to maneuver to advantageous positions. Like, trying to get to the edges of combat so that you can fire your signs and attack and dodge without being swarmed. The enemies are constantly trying to get around you. Mm -hmm. And I, I credit the game for having smart enough enemies that they're trying to hit you in the weak spots. But at times, it was just a pain in the butt. Like, I see what they're trying to do. I know what I want to do. And it was just, it felt like it was hard to make Geralt execute exactly the way that I wanted him to. And there's times where you get caught up on pieces of the environment that you don't necessarily see. It is really hard to kind of see, like around you behind you like the camera's back farther than like you would say in like god of war you can see a little bit behind you but it's still like there's no way to look behind you there's no like flip your view to see what's behind you or anything like that so it does get difficult in some like some areas or close quarters to try to try to get yourself around in the right way so i yeah i agree with that one too 
And one last thought before I turn it over to John. I liked that fire wasn't always the answer for the signs, too, because mm-hmm. I... I love chucking fireballs at dudes. <laughs> you could stun them and they'll stand there burning and it's just super satisfying for me. But it didn't always work. So I found myself constantly shuffling between signs. So I would, if fire wasn't working, I'd try art. I'd see if I could knock the opponents off their feet and then stab them while they're on the ground, which is an instant kill. Or when there's enemies with shields, which are a tremendous pain, I couldn't get the feel for dodging behind them. So I'd just use Quen. Like I yeah. would use my mind control and they'd be like, oh, I don't need to hold the shield anymore. And i go, whack, 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 fireball. <laughs> Suck it, guy. I I just loved the science system, and that was probably the highlight of the combat for me. So, I agree with everything you just said, Tom. Way to go! Hey, I <laughs> enjoyed I, good I games. Do. I agree with all that, right? Everything you guys just said, I am in complete agreement, right? Yeah, I do love the dodge, and like you know, they do a really cool thing. What I I love, you see it every once in a while. We're like. You can't predict it. You can't, at least I don't know how you can predict it, but like when you dodge and then if you attack after that, it will change how Geralt swings, right? Um, to where like he'll do like a little like side jab or this or that. And so they, they do that play of his dancing to where it does become like this, like almost like flow and dancing of his his combat. Um, it's I will say that the game, my first time playing through it, uh, really steep learning curve like i said but then as soon as like you get to like the midpoint like you just like oh now i have awesome like witcher armor and this and that so now mm-hmm. i'm just gonna walk in oh there's 15 bandits here pop 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 pop, pop. <laughs> everybody did yay <laughs> right you lose that fear right so like playing it again second time throwing it on that death march difficulty now i actually make it's it's one of the few times where i've put a game on the hardest difficulty and been like oh this makes this a better game this makes this a better game because now every combat experience is a good fight. I don't know, dude. Like, I like being at this mid-level tier now and just, like, swarming and just, like, being Geralt the Tank, mowing down armies <laughs> of foes. Like, after the struggles that I had in the beginning of the game where I was constantly dying, I like the sense of progression and that feeling of power that now, like, a banana camp, no big deal. <laughs> you will get to the point, though, but you're only about... A third of the way through the game. Okay, let me stop you there. I am 50 hours into this some bitch. 50 hours into The Witcher 3. I'm like level 18, and I'm a third of the way through the game. Like, I could tell... Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe a half. I don't know. I think I think you might be right with just being a third, because I've done a ton of side stuff. Where I am in the main story quest, like, I'm still doing the Dandelion stuff, so I, I've been to Skelligate, but I haven't, like, started any of the quest lines in there. I did some yeah. side quests over there, so... I still have a ton of game, 50 hours, 50 mostly super enjoyable hours. Yeah, and I'm 82 hours in. I finished all of the Novigrad stuff with Dandelion and so on um, and started out the quests in Skellige, uh, the main quest, and done a couple of little side things in. But yeah, 82 hours in, and I'm probably about two-thirds of the way through. It's nuts. A couple other things that you guys didn't touch on. Finishing moves are awesome. And as soon as, like, XP no longer becomes a thing you want to get, right, you can uh, – another thing you can do is when you kill a, a contract, you get its head, and you can hang its head on a roach, your horse, and then you get a buff for that. And one of the buffs – like, most of the time I go for, like, the XP buff for this, but one of the buffs is, like, you just do finishing moves all the time, right? So yes. you're just constantly, like, limbs are flying and heads <laughs> are chopping off, and it's just, like – it reminds me of like when you get into, you know, 
the lesser evil and you watch that video that that fight scene at the end of the lesser evil in the tv series that's what all the combat turns into is like choppy 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 blood <laughs> yay and like i love how awesome that makes you feel but tom i completely agree like it is hard to maneuver it you're constantly bumping into things right and you know cd project red like when like i didn't play the game when it first came out and again my first time through was on pc so i had the benefit of mods that fixed a lot of this stuff and smoothed out some of the combat coming back into the playstation 5 and playing this version i'm like ah oh, this is jankier than i remember <laughs> and that's probably a big part of it right um so you can see the rough edges around it i'm hoping the hd remake smooths out that sort of stuff if we ever see it mm-hmm. um right and that's you know why like when i play cyberpunk i'm expecting those rough edges although you know that's a whole other story but that's kind of <laughs> cd project red's pedigree when it comes to games right we need to have an enhanced version of the game because the first version was extremely buggy because we're so ambitious yeah it's a dual-edged sword in game development Big ambitious, big ambitious games are awesome and fun, but they come with a fair amount of jank. Mm-hmm. Brainsy, I kind of cut you off. Did you want to talk about using the bestiary and how that enhanced the so, combat system? Yeah, I mean, we've already touched a little bit on how the the bestiary will tell you. So these are the different things that work. So these are the bombs that work against it. This is the oil to use. This is, and it gives you the icons at the bottom. This is the signs that it's weak to. But when you read through the actual text of it, sometimes it gives you some other things that kind of work. I didn't read the text of a single one. I just looked at the what yeah. was effective against it. Um, and, and so I think that I thought that was interesting. And I think it, it, it does a really good job of when you read some of the books that you find throughout the world, it adds to the, the bestiary more. So you get more details, which is a lot like, you know, when he's telling Siri in the books to to read these books it's important to know what all these what all these monsters do and, and it's just the same thing but it's in the game it's part of it you know it's really I thought that was interesting it's really interesting how well they captured that aspect of the yes. book it was executed really well moving on from combat let's talk about our favorite elements of the character progression system like many rpgs you're fighting monsters you gain experience you level up you get ability points to spend and then you repeat in this case for one thousand million hours until <laughs> the game is over in this game, some of the things that set it apart, the skill trees are they're tied to colors, and I'm very color-oriented. We talked about this on the last episode of the podcast. Red are your combat abilities, so here's where you boost your basic attacks, your heavy attacks. The green skill tree is all about your potions, which is John's favorite. The blue skill tree is my favorite and deals with all of your signs. Basically, each level you get one ability point to spend. You can find places of power scattered throughout the world in those random points of interest where you get another ability point. You pump them into these abilities, and then you, as you level up, you unlock more ability slots to actually equip these abilities. So starting out, if you're putting one point in each different ability on each of the trees, like you can't possibly equip all of those. Mm-hmm. So you could conceivably give yourself a big toolbox, even though you have to manually go into the menu and equip one sign. Like You can just have your fire sign, Igni, up. Or if you decide you need another sign, you can swap it out for yen. Or um, what I did was I pumped a bunch of skill points into a very small amount of things, and as I unlocked more of those ability slots, 
I would then start investing in another ability to put into that spot. It gets another layer of complexity, complexity because there are four groups of ability spots. Each one of those groups has a slot to put in a mutagen, which you get by defeating different monsters. And there's another uh, part of the alchemy system that ties into this. But basically, if you put a red mutagen into that group of skills and then you equip red skills, you'll get an extra boost. So like the red skill tree gives you more combat attack power. The blue will make your abilities more, your signs more intense. The green one will make your, uh, gives you more life. Yeah. So the systems are tied together in that way. It sounds, it's a difficult thing to explain into a microphone. Yeah. It's a little complex. It's, it's not so hard to digest in a visual system other than the sheer number of skills. Did I miss any of the key elements? Do we want to start talking about our builds or did I miss anything crucial? There's one other tree. Oh, There's there is. a single skill tree which has some really powerful items, right? And again, it's, it's a sacrifice though, right? Well, now I'm not getting a mutagen, mutagen boost because it's the brown scale, but oh, if I'm going to be the guy that wears the cat armor, which is light, then I can go ahead and I can build out and I get more, better, a, a, critical, uh, a higher crit chance for every piece of light armor I wear. And don't right? bury the so, lead here. The single most important skill is on the street. This game, this entire game hinged on me finding the brown skill that lets you regenerate health during the day. And suddenly I wasn't so entirely reliant on water and food scraped off of fallen enemies to regenerate my life. I never took that one because the most important... What were you doing in this game, Burns? The most important skill in the game is that your food bonus lasts so much longer because then I drink water and that bonus lasts for like four hours. So then I'm just constantly regenerating whenever I take damage. And so that's like the most important skill in the game. That and the encumbrance. Upping your carry limit uh, by X amount more is so important because then I can just greet up all the stuff. (laughs) One thing that you're missing that is, is crucial, right? That took me a while to realize is the utilization of adrenaline points. Tom, I can't believe you didn't pinpoint this where, you know, because you're gaining these adrenaline points, hey, great, they're awesome. And you can get some combat skills that will eventually use those, right, and do awesome, like, twirly moves and all this cool stuff. Or, right out the gate, you can get a brown skill that converts adrenaline points into spell casting. Right? So the way magic works when you cast the sign, you have, like, a stamina bar you cast, and then it has to charge up. Mm-hmm. Well, as you're fighting, if you get a bunch of adrenaline points you can basically just spam spells right so that's a huge win you can also do adrenaline points where like if you have like if a hit's gonna kill you it just takes away an adrenaline point right and refills your life so that's another huge thing so like there's that level i mean look this is three three different people who played the game differently and it's just (laughs) fun that that to me is a good combat system oh i used it this way well i do it this way and i do it that way and they're all viable like solutions right that we had fun with so that is to me like an excellent like risk reward type system i loved setting the mutagens and tying different skills to them burnsy the skills that you mentioned about food lasting longer and encumbrance they sound very useful and Mm -hmm. like things that i would enjoy they're not tied to a color, and so I, I really prioritized the first first one, of course, I did was blue, so that I yeah. got the extra sign intensity. And then I started working on my potion, so the next mutagen I unlocked was green, and then I finally got the red one. So I, yeah. I, 
I see the value of those yep. skills that you prioritize, but I just couldn't pull the trigger on them because I wanted to keep working that synergy and increasing that bonus. Yeah, and basically how it worked was um, whatever the mutagen was. So I think the first one I went with was green uh, in the first slot. And so then I would have... At first, I had, I think, a red skill in there, a blue skill in there, and a green skill in there. Then once I went to the next tree, that's when I got, like, a yellow one. And then slowly, I started to specialize those into each one. So, like, the first set now are almost all green. The second set are almost all blue. The third set are almost all red. Because I'm slowly making that so that it's a more perfect fit, and I'm getting more of that bonus. Uh, But for me... Like those yellow ones, it's all right to have one slot not filled as long as the other two are filled with the proper color. And once I unlock that fourth tree, then the yellow ones will just all go down in there with maybe one other skill that I've unlocked and then tie a mutagen to that. Um, Or brown, I guess you guys have been saying. It always looked like yellow to me. but um, So yeah, so I think that's the way I've approached it. It's not like min-maxing my bonus out of it, but I'm getting to that point eventually. The other two, I think, are just necessary because otherwise I'm I'm needing to go through and sell stuff or drop stuff more often, and and that's just something I don't want to get in the way of exploration. Uh, And then I think the food bonus is just, like, if you are struggling with healing... Uh, because I was at that same point where I was running back to town constantly to spend all my money on water or spend all my money on uh freaking chicken sandwich, <laughs> you know? And, and now it's just like, I have tons of that stuff for days because I, I, it doesn't, it, it just lasts me that much longer because I get that bonus for that much longer. Burns and I just touched feet. <laughs> the, uh, the other cool thing that I love about the level up system in this is it also really you know, we've talked about like, oh yeah, it's great to go explore, right? And you're getting experience for like getting rid of monster dens and doing the quests you find. But you're also, when you find places of power, which is just like a random shrine out in the middle of nowhere, you get a point to put into whatever skill you want. Hey, great. You found this cool thing. So it incentivizes exploration. Mm -hmm. And then you get a point for every level you get. And then you get slots that unlock at different gates so you get this slow progression of like oh sweet i got a new skill and now i got another level so now i'm gonna put another point in that skill to build it up and then oh here's a big progression so now i can buy a new skill because now i can set that skill and actually use it right so was uh kind of a you know if you don't understand that it's kind of crappy because the first time i played it i like bought like three or four skills and realized Oh, I can only equip one at a time because I only had one slot open, <laughs> which was a bummer. But n- understanding how it works, it's a cool system to kind of say, you know, there's different ways you're leveling up that character depending upon experience level gains, places of power, and then when you hit different level caps. It is a cool system. I wore light armor. I focused on light armor. I got the skill to, uh, I got the cat skill to just keep that stamina pumping at all times so I can. Fire off my signs endlessly. Good stuff. (laughs) We've talked a lot about world exploration already. I don't think we need to go into it much more. There are endless interesting things to see and do. I didn't run into too many overleveled enemies. Joey, you had a very helpful note that I should avoid going too far east or north of Novigrad. Thank you. Yes, yeah. Well, so if you have the expansion, the Hearts of Stone expansion unlocked you can easily wander into areas that are like 
15 plus levels like monsters higher than you and yeah all you could do is just try to run as fast as you can yep uh i i made that mistake because it's like oh look i went to this board and it opened up all these new question marks and i go to the first one and it's just like red skull (laughs) it's like okay run away run away went to the next one red skull it's like okay i think i found where the expansion goes (laughs) you can have some fun with that though like you know the jank of the game can be awesome. At one point in time, you'll do a quest where there's a dragon that's circling, or a giant wyvern or whatever that's circling a tower, right? And I ended up at this spot way under leveled, uh, but I was like, oh, I know, I remember this, this and that. Like, oh yeah, there's this thing, and I was just kind of exploring, seeing what kind of gear I could get, and. I climbed up to the top of the tower and the dragon knocked me down in and it came in after me and got stuck inside the tower with me. (laughs) So like I'm in this tower where there's like a a ladder that goes down and I'm just dodging and whacking at this, this wyvern dragon thing, like barely doing any damage, but because it can't really move, uh, I eventually killed it. And I was like, ha ha. Awesome. (laughs) Like it cheesed this thing. And it was so funny. Uh, but like, you know, the jank can be fun sometimes and those high level en- enemies are really neat, especially the flying ones. Yeah, they're all right. <laughs> Burnsy, one of the highlights of this entire game for you was Gwent. Yes. Gwent is a collectible card game that is built into the Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. Uh, I don't want to go too much into the mechanics of it, but basically your deck is expanding as you play the game and a lot of npcs that you encounter also play gwent so you can play them and if you beat them you get another card that you add to your deck what is it that stood out to you about this collectible card game you've played a number of things like this before like the games in final fantasy what made gwent so unique and interesting to you i think so comparing it to things like triple triad or some of those other like side games that exist in a lot of other rpgs i think the biggest thing about gwent is that it's simple enough to understand how it works. You have your three rows, whether it's a close combat fighter, ranged combat fighter, or a siege engine, that things go into. You build your deck in order to have certain amounts of these different things. You have a leader that is going to have an ability that will make probably one of those three uh, more useful to put more uh, cards into and then it's like the whole got to catch them all aspect you got to try to find all of the different cards and it's like the most recent one i got was the Geralt card and that's awesome because Geralt is does 15 damage and he's just a a beast and so you know i i want to get more of these so i can fight in more battles against people and beat them and get their cards and hopefully get all of the cards because i i gotta catch them all it's pokemon yeah <laughs> so I think it's great and it does a good job because it's characters that you've run into or characters that you've read about and so you have like an affinity with certain ones of them and and or it's characters you haven't met yet and when they come up with it's like oh I got your card <laughs> and so I love it it's it's awesome yeah. but isn't like so and I, I read like this isn't my thought I'm going to say I read this on Reddit or something but someone brought up the point that like isn't it interesting though that like you're going to go sit down you want to play Gwent sure and Geralt's whipping out this deck and, like, someone lays down, like, hey, that's me on that card, and yeah. there's my daughter. Like, how do these, like, random, like, people, like, who's making these Gwent decks? Like, yeah. you, you you don't even play Gwent, and you walk in in, like, the first inn, and you meet some guy, and he's like, here's a spare deck. And, like, man, this is all, like, my friends. What's, <laughs> what's going on? Why is everyone in the world, like, 
how do they know who Dijkstra is and why is he a spy in this deck of uh-huh. cards? Do you know he's a spy in real life? Right, Wait right. a minute. That's not a very good spy. <laughs> <laughs> Breaks the third wall or the fourth wall a little bit, but I, I, it's it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's it's so much fun. And it and it's not surprising that it spun off uh, as a separate game outside of this. Um, though I don't know that it's like completely caught on, caught on. I think it has a decent player base, but uh, it's not surprising because it is a pretty, pretty well-rounded game with inside of this huge, well-rounded game. Yeah, it's another fun thing to do. There's a mm-hmm. lot of fun things to do within The Witcher. You also made a note that the game does a great job of using minor quests to create a living world. Yeah, so for well, the example I have for this is that you run into this corpse gatherer on top of a hill in just this is random side quest, and I think I got like one experience point for it. So I, I got nothing out of it other than I met this guy, and then Geralt just kind of tells him, you know, these people died of an infectious disease, and I'm... I'm fine with it. I'm not going to catch it because uh, I'm a witcher, but you're probably going to catch it. And the guy's just like, ah, no, no, I've got this strong constitution. Nothing ever gets me. None of my family's ever had this problem. You know, you go wander around the world for another 10, 15 hours and you bump into this random spot in Velen. And it's this guy that's just hacking and coughing. It's the guy you met. And he's just like, yeah, the rest of my family, family died of the plague and now I'm dying. And he asks you to just burn him. Huh. Just kill him. And you're just like, okay, Igni. <laughs> and it's just like, it's like these little things that it does to just add character. And it's like these small throwaway quests. Both legs of it took me no more than five minutes to do. Like I didn't, I had to burn the corpses at first. And then he asked me to burn him. And it's just like, that's it. But it's, it's, it's just adds character to the world. And it adds this level of understanding of what's going on. And there's lots of different instances where it just drops these little things. And I think one of the other things that I really loved was, so you, you go around the world and you're, you're trying to find these different pieces of gear, right? And so there's one when you're underneath Temple Isle uh, and you're looking for all of the cat gear. Um, so yeah, so you've probably done this or, or literally last night. Yeah. And so it, and, and you run into this, yeah, this it's mad Kivan or Keon, I believe is his name and you're fighting him and it's just like, it's, he's a witcher, but he's like all red and morphed and disturbing and you know, you fight him and he's a hard battle, but you kill him. And then you find a book in that same area and it's the journal of the wizard that was basically dissecting this witcher piece by piece to figure out how he worked and what, like how he like survived not being killed by all these different things that he did to torture him basically. And it's like, that's how this guy became this warped, twisted, sadistic version of himself that was still a witcher, but you know, he wasn't anymore. He was like barely a resemblance of anything human. Uh, and I think that's just like fascinating that if you take the time to dig into some of these pieces, you get that extra lore uh, and you get that understanding of how this stuff and to just put that effort into that, I think is amazing. And it's really cool. It's amazing the amount of love and care that they put into the most incidental characters in this game. More important than that is the work and the love and the effort that they put into the main characters. Let's spend some time talking about our favorite characters and quests. John, your favorite quest was Gwent. I don't fully understand. (laughs) (laughs) Gwent is... look Okay, so there is an amazing Gwent tournament, right? And 
I love the entire, like, there's several quests that surrounded by Gwent, and also, like, the boxing quests and this and that. Mm-hmm. It, they, it just, to me, the best side thing to do in the game. Like, I want to go and be the best Gwent player. So every time I'm going, I'm going to find this innkeeper and that one and this one and that one. I love those quests. And then that culmination of, like, and now here's this really cool tournament. That is just an awesome, awesome quest. If you haven't done that quest, do it. It's great. I love that quest. I'll hopefully get to it someday. Bernsey, you really liked the protagonist. Geralt. What made Geralt stand out to you? The titular <laughs> witcher of everything we've been talking about for almost three hours. Yeah, I mean, I think to be, because I thought about this a lot and I tried to think about why is it that like Witcher 3... I'm able to stick with it, like, other than doing the podcast. Like, what is it that, like, draws me into this open world RPG more than any other open world RPG that I've played before? Uh, And I think a lot of the reason why this game keeps me drawn in is that compared to all the other open world RPGs, this is, like, the only one that doesn't have a silent protagonist. You are a character that's somewhat defined. Granted, you have the power to define him even more. Is he a witcher that always is just about getting money? Or does he every now and again, if he sees that people don't have the means, does he, like, turn that aside or not? Like, the fact that it's a defined character that has a personality, but you're able to just, like, tweak it a little bit, I think makes this game stand out so much more compared to, oh... I'm just this random kid of two people in Fallout 4, or I'm Link, who all he does is go, yeah, yeah, and break weapons all the time. I think it's the fact that you are this this actual character that has all of this depth and all of this backstory that you unlock as you go through the game, I think is what makes it that much more interesting and, and allows like me to stay connected to it for as long as I have. Um, and want to see it through to conclusion. And I think it's that connection he has with the other characters, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's also not, you know, Geralt is fully rounded and has depth, but, like, everybody he interacts with, they all have their own story, too, right? Everybody's got their own stuff going on, and that ability to say, hey, I'm not only interested in the main character I'm playing, right, but I'm also interested in Kira Metz, in Dijkstra, in, you know, uh, what's happening with Radovid, right? Like, this world, like, what's happening in Novigrad, right? You walk into Novigrad, and, like, people are burning, right? So, like, it brings you into the world in a way that, hey, I'm the character, I'm Geralt, I'm making his choices, I'm interested in his journey, but I'm also interested in the journey of all these other really interesting characters around me because none of them are flat either. Even mm-hmm. like like you said, the guy, the corpse guy on the hill, yeah. right, isn't flat. Everybody's got a little bit of an arc to them. As much as we all love Geralt, I enjoyed when the game took a break from Geralt and put you in the shoes of Siri. I had such a crush on Siri in this game. Like she is just bad. I loved her like blink ability, her mobility in the battlefield, and I loved every moment that I got to control Siri, as opposed to being Geralt. Yeah, I, I, I think that, I, I think those pieces are interesting, and it, it is fascinating, like how different she plays. 
uh, from Geralt. Uh, she uh, obviously doesn't have like all the same tricks, but can do a lot of other things like so much better, <laughs> uh, which I think is interesting. Um, I, I, to me, I don't feel like there's been enough of her in it yet for me to really lump her into there. And I'm guessing at some point that's going to change throughout the story. Um, but I, I do think that it is a nice change of pace when you are playing as her. And then also how they use some of that in some of the instances to bring out other aspects of the characters that you're meeting as Geralt in a different circumstance. I think that's also really interesting and neat how they do that as well, especially like with the Bloody Baron was one of the first times where you see that. Well, I thought that was one of the few places, sorry to cut you off, John. I thought that was one of the few places where the writing faltered was when Siri interacted with the Bloody Baron. Like he just glommed onto her and like it seemed out of character for this like drunken brazen animal that he was to be so kind and tender-hearted with Siri. That felt that was the only place in 50 hours of story that I felt maybe the writing struggled a little bit. Um, I was gonna well, I, I could kind of see that. My point I was going to make was I think one of the like we talked previously about the books and how the non-linear story structure was was difficult, right? But I feel like they do it so well here. Right, they do really interweave series story being told by these other characters to Geralt in an excellent way, where it's like, oh yeah, all right, awesome, and they have some great, great cinematic breaks where, like, I love how it, like, in the Bloody Baron, it's like, I'm gonna get you this far, Geralt, and then nope you don't get any more information until you do the next thing for me. And that's where series story stops. I'm like, I want to know what happens next. It's not like I got to do this thing for this, this jerk face. And I absolutely agree. This, in this instance, I loved how they broke up the story with it and changed that pacing where it was jarring for me with the books was like, you're up here, then you're down here, then you're at point A in the timeline, then you're at point W and now you're at point F and now you're starting at point D or you're at point Q and it. It was done really well in the game. I just felt like it was so jarring and all over the place in the books. There are a lot of interesting female characters in the Witcher universe. Joey, you really like Triss and the conflict she was dealing with in Novigrad. Yeah, yeah. So, and I haven't played Witcher 1 or 2, but from the from the books, you get a pretty good sense as to like the love triangle of, you know, Geralt, Triss, and Yennefer and uh and I think with her storyline, it does a really good job of kind of the interactions with her and how she's kind of built up this sort of protection around herself because she knows about those two and their feelings for each other. And even though she has feelings for Geralt, there's not much that she can do about that and kind of knows or understands the whole destiny aspect of it between those two and that she can't really get in the way of that. Um, and so like the distance she creates with Geralt, but then the moments of where that drops, um, as well as then balancing that, not just with, you know, sort of dealing with all those emotions and her care for Siri and wanting to make sure that Siri is protected, but then also the fact that she feels like princess Leia. Well, yeah, like the life of all of the rest of the mages are in her hands. And so she has to balance all of these three different things. And so, 
you know, when she's with Geralt, some of that facade falls down a little bit. But then when she's in front of the mages, she has to be strong and she has to be a leader and she has to help them get out of the situation. Uh, so I think that that was just really fascinating with how they portrayed her in the Novigrad section. I haven't met her again down the line if, if it happens in the game. And so I'm guessing that there's even more to that uh, later on also. But I think that's awesome. I agree. She was really well done. One of the things that bugged me in the show, she didn't have red hair. It's the wrong color. Well, wasn't it? No, or was it? it was no, like her depiction in the show is way different than the uh, than the video game. Triss. Triss is actually the reason I derailed off of the main storyline. Like I knew that this podcast was coming. I knew uh-huh. the clock was ticking for me to in, like encounter as much of the main story as possible. And I got to a point in Overground I could have kept pushing the dandelion stuff, but I'm like, nope. Gotta find out what happens with Triss. Yeah. And then, like, from there, I, like, started hunting the cat gear, and it just completely derailed me off the main story. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm not going to get through the main story anyway, so I may as well enjoy everything I can at the level that I'm at right now. And I I love the Triss storyline. I agree. I think that she will come back at some point, and I really hope that it's not, like, you know, 10 years in real life for me until I get back to that <laughs> point. John, you like pigs. <laughs> well... So, you know, I, I was focusing on this area more on, like, some of my favorite quests, right? And I love the pig quest. Did everyone get to do the pig quest? Mm-hmm. I don't recall the pig quest. Right. So there's just a random quest where, like, you walk into a town and, like, there's some guys that are, like, barbecuing up a pig. And there's all these pigs everywhere in this town. And, like... There's a dude in the town who's like kind of the village idiot, and he's freaking out. He's like, "No, you're eating Torvald or whoever you're eating, you know." No, and you're like, "What? What's going on?" You end up fighting those guys, and, you're, and it turns out like the entire town's been turned into pigs, and these people just ate a person, right? <laughs> and it's just like you know, again, it ties back into like the fairy tale aspect and this and that. And the entire quest was just this like you're you at one point you're herding pigs using Axie, and yep. It was. It's a great quest to me where it's like, hey, we have these different skills that the Witcher can do with his Witcher sense. Let's have him use Axie in a different way. So to me, it's a great example of like the morbidness of like this person just got eaten, uh-huh. right? But also like the hilarity of like this Witcher like having to like lead – these uses, pigs around uses supernatural right. abilities to shepherd some pigs. Yep. Right. So, and like at one point he's like talking to a pig and I like snort. Yes. For once for yes. And <laughs> yeah. twice for no. <laughs> right. It's so, awesome. that he, it's, so it's just like stuff like that, like where, Oh, this is completely different, but it's in this world. And I love that quest. And I missed it. I explored a good chunk of this world. Like yeah. I can't, I'm so bummed that I missed the pigs it's just one random town and it's still there if you go back it's in Velen. oh no it's gone i burned it somewhere. i ate i ate the pig too you probably burned all the pigs yourself like yeah. oh, all these delicious pigs i need sandwiches because i'm dying all the time <laughs> and now i don't die all the time i think i did the right thing look at all these pork question mark sandwiches i have now <laughs> so lovely but you know i mean characters that i love in this game you know to kind of go back to that question you know you know deekstra always stands out mm-hmm. what is it about uh, Dijkstra yeah. that's so charismatic because like I immediately glommed onto him in the game I've barely encountered him in the books I don't remember encountering him in my time in Witcher 1 but like I just was immediately drawn to this spy turned criminal uh, overlord underlord 
Criminal Mastermind. There you go. Yeah. He, I, I think, you know, the way I, uh, to me, he's one of the few characters that, like, completely see, sees through Geralt's BS. Right? He's There's like, a... I know you're lying to me, right? I'm going to let it play out and see how you're going to react, Geralt. And, like, no, you lied to me. But then, even though Geralt, you know, you're maybe because you're you're trying to protect Dandelion, you're Dandelion, a Dandy Lion, Dandelion, Dandelion uh, you're, is you're apparently certain <laughs> things for like the right reason. You know, you're still pissing this guy off because he knows you're lying. And if you would have just been straight with him, he probably would have been cool with it. With well, the, type, the type of guy he is, I and lied that's why to he's him. just like, Burns, did nah, you, like you know what? Fine. You know, I'll still stick to my end of the bargain, but. You're basically now you're dead to me, right? That's a very specific. So, that's a very specific point in the story. I also lied to him. Burns, did you do the same thing? I, I believe so, but like eventually made it right with him. I think I don't know, because like stuff continued with him <laughs> down the line. It still always continues with him, from yeah. my understanding. But like he's salty, man. Yeah. He is oh, salty. Yeah. He yeah. Um, and like. He's just, you know, he's just a cool character to me. And he's he was cool in The Witcher 2, right? He's just this awesome, like, you know, when he shows up in The Witcher books, it's cool, yeah. right? Uh, and, like, just the, the spy who knows everything, you know, and can walk it. Like, the fact that he is this spy, world-renowned spy, and everybody knows he's a spy, but he's just going to come in and, like, be under a different name, which I had forgotten about. Oh. Right, so that was a cool thing too. Where I came back, and then like, like, wait a minute, oh, holy smoke! Oh yeah, that's right, it's Dijkstra. This is awesome. What's he doing in the bathhouse? This is so cool. <laughs> so like that, like twist was a cool little, like you know, if you've played the game before, is a cool thing. If you've played Gwent, you're wondering why is my Dijkstra card wearing a towel, and then <laughs> it all fl- you know gets flushed out. So yeah, I liked it. And I think for me, the the thing that's appealing to me about him is that in this world where it's all like ruled by kings and magicians uh, and witchers and all these people with special abilities or all of this power because they were birthed into it. You have this guy that's like Batman, who's mm. just like, well, I'm I'm just got my own wiles to me and I'm going to play at the same table as everybody and be a step ahead of most of them. And I think that's what's appealing to me about him. Um, and, and even though he's a spy, which is looked at as being like a negative, um, he still is like his importance is trying to end up doing what's right for Radanya, Right. And so I think that's also kind of interesting that he has his own moral compass, even though he's a criminal spy. Right. Well, is he Batman or is he Littlefinger? Or is he Varys with balls? he's Varys right Um, he always because he knows everything right he's got his little birdies everywhere I think that's more accurate yep Varys with balls alright well let's wrap up our thoughts on the Witcher 3 Wild Hunt this game is unequivocally a narrative masterpiece Mm -hmm. like if you like story based RPGs you need to stop everything and just play the Witcher 3 and be prepared to sink some time into it. Bernsey, do you concur? 
Yeah, the game's fantastic. It, it has the amount of content in the game that, like, an MMO has. Like, John mentioned that it was like an MMO before, and I think there's a lot to that. It's like, you come in today, and you don't feel like moving the main story quest along. Well, you can play Gwent for a while, and then, you know, you're, you're sick of playing cards. You could go wander the world and just explore a different area. Um, and each of the areas, like, kind of is distinct. Like, Skellige is different than Velen, and Novigrad as a city is very different from any of the other places you've been to. Uh, like, it does a really good job of making it all make sense within the same world. Um, if you want more difficulty, you could go fight a Witcher contract. I, I just think it, it has, like, this here's everything you can do. Do what you want, when you want to, um, and eventually you'll be able to keep moving things forward to the end. And so far, like, the story has been fantastic. I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes um, and then how that matches up to the books once I finish those. So I'm really intrigued all in all about it, all of it. Play the game. Everybody, <laughs> please, please play this game buy the DLC and play that too. The DLC wraps everything up so amazingly well. The beauty you see, right? Like in the base game, man, when you get to Troussant, it's like you want to talk fairy tale come to life. That is the true fairy tale stuff. There's like some amazing quests with, with Roach the horse where he talks there. Like, <laughs> please play this game. Um, you know, the amazing writing, it, you can get it for 10 bucks. Right, it's on uh -huh. PlayStation. It's on Switch for forty. Like, there's no reason not to get this if you like story in your games. You know, be ready. It does. I I, I do want to like you know, it's my greatest game of all time. But like playing through it, it does show its age a little bit. Mm -hmm. Right, it's a little bit clunky here and there, just like any major, major, huge open world game. You're gonna have to get used to seeing the same people over and over. The character models are reused quite a bit. Right. Every time, like now, when I'm watching like a cutscene, I'm like, "There's that guy from before, and he's uh -huh. there's his brother and his other brother and his other brother. They're all over the place." So you get used to that, um, right? Even though like the individuals, when you talk to them, they do have a distinctness to them. So right, uh, yeah, pick it but up. I think I think no reason not to play this game unless you just hate good characters and hate fun. And, and even if they reuse the character models, the character models and the faces specifically still look better than Bethesda faces do because Bethesda yeah. faces until they get that new engine going are still fugly. <laughs> they are real bad. Everything looks great. I mean, and I will say like the, you know, one of the best open world games where, you know, just walking around, you can just go stand, put on a good set of headphones and go stand in like the Novigrad like marketplace. And you'll hear like eight different conversations going around and they're just amazing. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, it's just a fun world to be in. I agree. And this game is awesome and I love it. And I've had a tremendous amount of fun with it. I think I just have a hard time arguing for this game as the greatest game of all time. As much as I loved it and as much as it's a game for me, I think there, when you're going to call something the greatest game of all time, there's a certain level of mass appeal. And as awesome as I think RPGs are, RPGs aren't for everybody. So, if John, if you were to classify it as your favorite game of all time, like I'm all on board with that. And I get that as an individual decision. But to call it the greatest game of all time, the greatest game of all time. I'll give you greatest RPG of all time. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, it's a better choice for a greatest game of all time than The Binding of Isaac. I'll <laughs> that. I don't know. It's it's a great experience, and I'm really glad that we made time to play it for this show. Yeah, I agree. 
Just one more main topic to go, guys. You ready to do this? Oh, yeah. Before we get to The Witcher, the show, we're going to do Tom Awesome's Top 5. It's time now for... Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. For our Top 5 today, we are going to discuss Henry Cavill's Top 5 Roles. This sounded like a great idea in concept. It sounded like a really wonderful idea that tied in wonderfully to the other topics in the show. It, Well, I'll start with number 5. Cavill's portrayal of Humphrey in Stardust. Now, I don't really honestly i don't remember this character <laughs> but it turns out i've only seen cobble in five different things and i <laughs> i saw stardust i enjoyed stardust so it became by default number five <laughs> spoiler alert honorable mention is going to be real real short here <laughs> or non-existent don't ruin everything <laughs> i'm just guessing i didn't look we'll get there number four Albert Mondego, Count of Monte Cristo. I just watched this movie for the first time recently, and I was stunned to see a young Superman playing the uh, son of the main character, who thought he was the son of another character. I don't think he really stood out in this role, but out of the five things that I had seen him in, he was more memorable than Stardust. Number three, Superman. I give Cavill a lot of credit for taking a character that I think is just boring and making him interesting. One specific moment that stands out to me is in Justice League when the Flash is trying to run around Superman and they, they work the camera so that like you can see Superman tracking the Flash with his eyes. Just like my favorite Superman moment. I, mean, I think, you know, you can at me all you want. Um, at Hobby Box Burns. He is the he is the best person who's ever played Superman in live action form. I mean, is that true or is it just because the superhero movies of the 80s sucked and uh, old Christopher Reeves just portrayed him in the wrong era? Christopher Reeve is iconic as him, I would I would agree, but I just think the character's more interesting with him. Whether that's Ian Kane and myself have a bone to pick with you, sir. <laughs> Dean Kane is going to be adding you. Well, that's interesting because you guys are both wrong. It's clearly Thomas no. Wellington. <laughs> Tom Well? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, Smallville, I think, yo. Oh, no, no, no. He was never even Superman. If we want to get into that argument, he doesn't fly until like the very final episode of that show. No, it was like the third season. Like, well, maybe he levitated, but. I mean, Clark Kent is Superman. He's the same human being, or he's the same no, he's alien. He's not a human being, yeah. <laughs> I will say that, you know, Smallville had the best Lex Luthor we've yeah. ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But like, I would agree with, with Bernsey that Cavill's probably the best Superman that I've seen. Yeah, Thomas Wellington, you're right. Number two, this is where the Cavill debate gets interesting. There are two properties where I really, really loved him. I loved the property, I loved his portrayal. At number two, I'm saying Geralt of Rivia is the Witcher. I thought he really nailed this role, and he brought the character right out of the pages. When I initially saw him in the first episode, I thought he was a little beefy for Geralt. I thought, in my head, Geralt was just leaner and not just this big, muscular hulk of a dude. 
he really grew on me as the show grew on. It was interesting. Uh, I read an article about 10 things you didn't know about The Witcher. They apparently cut roughly 50% of his dialogue. They thought that Kavil did such a good job portraying Geralt's emotions and feelings in the scenes just with his facial expressions and his body language that they literally just cut out large swaths of his dialogue. Because they didn't think it was necessarily interesting. Yeah. Well, huh. He was really good in that role. Honorable mention, there are none. Thanks for ruining my birthday party, friends. <laughs> I just wish it impossible. Oh, you could have thrown Mission Impossible in there. I haven't seen the Mission Impossible that he's in. I've only seen like one and two, maybe three. Yeah, I've only seen one and two. Yeah, first one is really good. <laughs> so. Red light! Green light! Well, honorable mention, any uh, that clip of him talking, you know, or every meme where it's, you know, uh, you know, where he's like, oh, do you play The Witcher on P- uh, PlayStation or Xbox? And he's like, PC, what are you talking about? Right? <laughs> or, you know, any interview where he talks about how he almost missed the role of Superman because he was playing WoW. That's his honorable mention. <laughs> or, or honorable mention his Twitch stream where he was building a PC, which uh, yeah. happened like two years ago or whatever. Yeah, I'd drink some beers with Henry Cobble. I feel oh, like yeah. we'd get along. He seems like he'd be an awesome yeah. dude. Yeah. We like Henry Gobble fanboys. This is getting a little weird. We know a little bit too much about like the stuff he's doing outside of like the top five. Well, to be fair, I'd rather hang with Chris Hemsworth. Oh no way! I would. I would pick Henry Cavill in a heartbeat. Hemsworth him. is so phenomenally talented. Like he can sing, he can dance. Like he is just. I think he's the most charismatic man on the planet. Who's gonna go to a land party with you? Yeah. See. You guys, <laughs> Patrick. It I'll took, be your quit, Chris Hensworth. Then it took three hours and seven minutes, but I finally mentioned Patrick on the show. <laughs> Number one in Henry Cavill's top five roles: Solo, Man from Uncle. John, when we were talking about this show, you joked that I just list this role five times, but I do love this film, and Henry Cavill is a large part. He and Arnie Hammer are both phenomenal in this, and I watched some clips of the original actor playing Solo from the original TV series, and I thought Cavill did such a great job of emulating him. He was just great actor in a phenomenal role. Never seen it. Yeah. Never going to either. That's that's the hill I'm going to die on. I'm never watching Man From U.N.C.L.E. Swap one and two, and, and, I'll, and I'll back this top five. Yeah, I'd love to work on a Blade Runner joke, but it's been <laughs> three hours and eight minutes, and I'm kind of running out of material. How you me? Should I go home? <laughs> Dude, I said no more journey psychos. Running out of material. <laughs> what did we miss on my stellar top five Henry Cavill's roles? Tweet your thoughts at Tom Savachik O I O. Just one more time, guys. Just one more. Our final topic today is season one of the Netflix series The Witcher. Released on December 20th, 2019, it stars Henry Cavill as Geralt, Freya Allen as Ciri, Anya, I'm going to butcher this and I apologize to the actress, Anya Kalatra as Yennefer of Vangenberg. This show has a Metacritic of 52, buoyed by a zero from Entertainment Weekly. Entertainment Weekly, you can go f*** yourself. (laughs) You are a legitimate... Yeah. Zero. You are a legitimate. You are a legitimate news outlet that covers entertainment. You cannot give a property a zero. Like if you don't like it, still assign a score to it. And I, I read a chunk of this, and they were just trashing the first episode and just how awful the whole thing was. Like, 
it, you, I play as a critic on, and my spare time is outside is overrated. And we like we can poke some fun at stuff. Mm-hmm. We uh, we have certainly had our share of negative opinions on the media that we've talked about over the last couple of years. But for a legitimate news outlet to just completely trash a fantasy series without taking like an objective view of it, like oh, it's yeah. like if. If you walked into this expecting Game of Thrones, this is something else. This is something different. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting and good. Yeah. And I can respect someone who had a differing opinion from that, but to give it a zero. Right. Oh, Entertainment Weekly, you are dead to me. And it really seems like it was only off of the first episode. It didn't seem like they watched any more of it. And, and so I think part of that might be on Metacritic for they're representing it as it being for the season when they only watched the one episode. Because, um, I mean like any show it takes time to really get to the meat of it um and like this i mean just like anything if, if you read one of the short stories um out of all the context of the rest of the books you know that short story might suck but then once you read it all together and it all makes sense and like with this like the setup of that one show of that one episode like he's referred to as the butcher of Blevikin many times in the show as well as in the game and it's like Okay, yeah, that all makes sense because that's part of the world building. Just incense that they gave it a zero. <laughs> yes. I, I don't put a lot of stock into Metacritic. I list it as it's just it's a snapshot. Yeah. It's yep. a snapshot of people's opinions. I just I don't know why that zero enraged me so much. <laughs> Plot points from the first season. The show visits several stories from the books, specifically from the two collections of short stories, The Last Wish and The Sword of Destiny. You follow Geralt as he meets Yennefer, as Destiny connects him with Ciri, and as he battles the occasional monster. Let's start by talking about the cast members that stand out to us. Joey, we're going to go head-to-head right away here. Let's talk about Dandelion. I, I really enjoyed the portrayal of Dandelion because, I mean, sure, we maybe haven't gotten a peek behind the mask much yet, but I think that's something that they're probably going to get to, and I think... They captured him as this just lovable, uh, this lovable uh, minstrel who's kind of like the hype man for Geralt. And I think that that's a funny way to take a spin on it. And, you know, they do a good job of making him funny and having lots of bits that wrap around that. But then there's still a few serious points here or there where you kind of start to see behind the veneer of that. Uh, in some of the episodes. And so I think the actor did a really good job. Uh, the song like was popular for a while. Uh, the toss a coin to your Witcher, you know? Uh, and I don't know. I, I think Dandelion is really, really good. John, you also thought that Joey Beatty stood out as Yaskier. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that they did an excellent job setting up the relationship of Geralt and Yaskier slash Dandelion. Yeah. dandelion i can't i keep saying dandelion i don't know why but like i love i love how like you know you actually get a little bit of that backstory where like you see like that frustration of like oh, man like why are you following me go away right <laughs> and you know yes you're kind of having that like well you're where the action is so we're stuck together right so you're seeing the beginning of that and then by the end when you see you know last wish near the end of the season uh, you see that, oh, this is really evolved, right? They've gone through like these adventures and now they have this banter. And I, I loved that shift. I 
would agree with Tom more on like you're you know you don't really get that like I'm caring for that character. He's just fun. At this point, he's just fun for me, and I'm seeing that like here's the humor, here's the crazy fun, you know, yes gear that is the Bard, and he to me totally is just the Bard that that scamp, right? And I loved him. I thought the actor did a really good job. I think I struggled more with the writing. One of the things that draws me to Dandelion is the connection he has with Geralt through the books. He's the lone constant companion that the Witcher has through his adventures. And I really struggled with the uh, the Bounds of Reason adaptation where Geralt just freaks out on him at the end. It didn't feel... It didn't feel like it was in the spirit of the relationship. And I get from a storytelling perspective, like, it's nice to have some conflict so they have something to overcome. But it just, it felt, I didn't like that portrayal of their relationship, and it kind of drug down the whole dandelion experience for me. Well, but I mean, in that episode, he lashes out at, like, everybody in that episode at the end. And so, I I think, I think that's, like, part of it. And I, I do think that, you know, Geralt, you know... I, I I mean, they definitely there's because there's episodes after that where they they've patched up and they've been like moving on with each other and so on and so forth. So I think I, I think what it is, is it was more to show like Geralt's vulnerability and anger and frustration at that point in time than like a complete degrading of their relationship together. Um, but the characterization of Geralt that I play in The Witcher 3 is not. <laughs> an- <laughs> well, yeah, but that's later in the timeline. But I played them at like the same time. There's multiple <laughs> media points. It's just messing with me. Quick aside, do you guys know why Dandelion is called Yaskier in the show? It's uh that was what his original name was in the Polish translation of the books, but that didn't translate over correctly. It translated right. to Buttercup, and they didn't think that yeah. Buttercup was an appropriate name. So yeah, Yaskier is the character's actual name. That is a true to the source material name but it was just a translation issue and now he's named as uh it's in poland it's a yellow petaled flower and so the translators just substituted the most beautiful of yellow <laughs> petaled flowers and named them after a freaking weed that grows in my front yard and i think my, one of my favorite things that i saw about that too is that when they did the recording i think for the last wish the reader for that kept calling him dandelion instead of dandelion uh and so it's just like every time i see it i just think dandelion dandelion i think i did something similar the first time i read it because i didn't realize it was dandelion and even when i did realize it was dandelion i'm like that is a stupid name for a character (laughs) what an unfortunate surname Uh uh-huh i already mentioned in my top five that Geralt was great do you guys want to talk about kavil at all and his portrayal of the titular character? I, I think we covered it, at least from my perspective, what you said was pretty much the same for me. Yeah, we've hit the points. I will say, you know, one thing we didn't talk about, you know, we talked about, you know, the his emotion and his acting as far as, like, the dialogue, but his combat, the mm-hmm. fighting, right? Excellent. If you haven't watched the behind-the-scenes uh thing on the winter on netflix watch it it's great to see how they did a lot of the stuff they were doing with like the mix of cgi and real life action but like to be able to have the sort of control and choreography he did i think was was fantastic yeah agreed apparently he trained with the sword like non-stop in all of his spare time so hats off to him like i'm sure it was a challenging role anytime you have to be like a medieval 
fantasy warrior. That's got to be very difficult to pull off, and he did great. Joey, the, uh, gosh, I don't know how to say her first name. Tissia DeVries? Yeah, Tissia DeVries. Tissia DeVries. That is Yennefer's teacher. What made this character stand out to you? So I I think the thing that was most interesting with that character, uh, because it's a character that's mentioned in the books, like in passing, and it's interesting because I think you see a lot in her relationship as it evolves with Yen. Uh, like at first it's very terse very like authoritarian kind of almost over her but then she slowly starts to like drop the veneer a little bit with Yennefer um, as she you know determines that a she's super gifted with magic but b that she needs kind of someone to be that almost at least if not a parent type figure because I don't think she really fits that role at least a good mentor to that extent. And I think as the episodes develop and it gets to like the final episode, like you see that relationship and how she's kind of this grounding point for this, just, just this pure, like magical chaos being that is Yennefer. Uh, I think it's just really interesting to see how that develops and grows over time. And they have their spats with each other. Um, but then it like kind of comes down to the fact that they like love each other and will do what they need to do to try to protect them. And that even when Yennefer is completely unleashed, she still protects her at least from her power, which I thought was interesting. And I think it is also interesting to look at kind of the commonalities between that relationship and then the relationship between Yennefer and Ciri at the end of Blood of Elves. Um, and this sort of teacher and student mentor mentee kind of relationship and how that kind of goes back and forth and the, the interplay between them two, I, I think is, is, is parallel to how that develops as this show goes on. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. Uh, and I, I really thought that the actress did a good job of seeming like she's just this one note character, but then slowly like opening up the onion and peeling it back a little bit. So I thought that that was really well done for a character that didn't have as much screen time as a lot of the other characters, uh, throughout the, the show had. And I thought DeVries was interesting because in the hierarchy of mages within the Witcher universe, it seemed like a very man's world and she seemed kind of out of place or like a trailblazer. So she had to sometimes sacrifice her own ambition to accomplish the greater good for the mages and to advance the female sorceress, in general. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I just thought she was in an interesting position within the hierarchy of mages and that she pulled it off really well. Mm-hmm. We should probably spend some time talking about the two female leads in The Witcher. John, I'll let you go first. You really liked Freya Allen's portrayal of Siri. Yeah, I think it's you know, like I said earlier, it's an interesting role in a fantasy setting. You know, we've we've seen now with Game of Thrones some really strong female characters, right? Uh, so not as unknown as what we've seen before, but I think it's very would have been very easy for this actress to come in and kind of be like, well, she's kind of a brat to start out with, right? So you can't be too Joffrey, right? Because <laughs> we have to care about this character in a couple episodes, right? So she had to straddle this line between being the spoiled princess, right? 
who is extremely special and knows she's special, right? And then, like, you know, but now, sorry, princess, like, you're running for your life and you're going through this crazy, like, war zone. And to be able to, like, that scene where she's trying to escape, like, she did such an amazing job as Siri, right? And just she hits so many different emotions throughout the series from when, hey, she's safe and she's the bratty kid to where she's on the run to where she's, you know, coming into her own to where she's having to make some really hard choices with, like, what the outside world is like, right? And having to see, like, how it's not all, you know, like it was at the top of her ivory tower. So I think, you know, she made me care about that character, when it could very easily be like, here's the bratty kid, and we're not going to care about that character maybe until season two, where we can shift that focus to something different. I'm going to make a confession. I don't care that much about that character. About Siri? About Siri. I don't care that much about young Siri. The whole uh, wandering around, like Tyrion wandering around the continent that wasn't Westeros, getting grabbed like a football, being abducted, being drug over here, <laughs> being thrust in front of the Queen of Dragons. Like, it just... I... I mentioned how much I enjoyed the character of Ciri in The Witcher 3. And, like, I know I have an idea what she's going to grow into. And I have an idea of what she's going to become. I'm just, I want to see her as that. I'm not super interested in how she grows to that. I think the show did an awesome job of developing Yen's backstory. I don't know if I need a more backstory of Ciri. I kind of want to jump to the good stuff with her. I think what it needs to do, though, is set up, like, so, okay. It, it, it's It's setting up, okay, this is... Siri trying to fend for herself um, and, you know, trying to find her way through the situation and make her way from point A to point B, knowing nothing about the world outside the walls of Sintra. And basically, I guess you could look at it this way, destiny pointing her in the places that she needs to go, but her like trying to fumble her way through um, as best as she can, right? And that's what this whole first season is, is is this kid that's like out in the middle of nowhere, vulnerable as all heck, sometimes has different people looking out for her because she's this kid stumbling around nowhere. Uh, and in typical Siri fashion, she thinks she knows she knows best. And if somebody's trying to help her, she will then maybe take off, uh, you know, uh, and head in her own direction and. Uh, and so I think I think it's interesting and I think it's going to it helps to sort of set up like some of the rebellious nature that she has and then some of the other things that are going to happen as she is with uh, the people that she's supposed to be with and then gets separated again from the people that she's supposed to be with. Right. And so I think that's it's so sort of setting that up uh, as you get forward or deeper into the character uh, moving down the line. Um, so I think it's important. I think it was interesting. I let, think it was well done. Let me put you on the spot here, Burns. Do you, in your heart of hearts, think that Ciri could take down the Night King? The Night King in Game of Thrones? Yes. Uh, n- not now, but with more power. Like, so you, which, you're talking about Ciri in season one of Witcher. Oh, now you're going to bring logic into it. Yeah. Because okay. we haven't seen her down the line and what her power level is. Um,. But so, John, I'll turn to you here. <laughs> How old is Siri when she's like a bad? <laughs> <laughs>
the Witcher universe. Like when she's in the Witcher three, what is she? Eighteen ish, twenty one, sixteen? Twenty twenty. Okay, yeah. so she's total badass at twenty. Arya killed the Night King when she was like eight. But she's but she's, <laughs> she's not a total bad. She's got some cool powers, right? But she's still like unsure of herself. Yep. She's still finding who she is. Yeah. Right? She's on the run. Like you've you've like you've seen her do some flashy cool moves in the Bloody Baron's flashback. Right? You've seen a small sliver of the story that is Siri, right? So, like, yeah, that's a cool little zoomy move she's got, and she moves cool, and she's got <laughs> sweet hair with some awesome, like, eyeliner. Yeah, but, she brings it with that hair, that eyeliner. <laughs> right? Like, okay, cool. And, like, she could time travel and, like, go to other worlds, but she's still just a scared little kid who's running and looking for Geralt. Wait a minute. Wait, she's wait. in her 20s. She can go to other worlds? Yeah. Oh, bring on that I don't want to see her fumble around Broccolon for Christ's sakes. There's, there's a moment in the game where she's talking to Geralt, I think, about another world she's been to because she's a child of the Elder God. She can do that. And she actually, like, the, the, the inline joke is that she went to the cyberpunk world. Huh. She saw flying cars and this and that. She described cyberpunk. When people read that, they're like, they're doing cyberpunk. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But, <laughs> That's awesome. That's very but, fun. Yeah, so to Bernsey's point, this part of her story is important because it sets a pattern and also sets her along the, the path she needs to get to Geralt, who's always going to be, you know, her her light. Her destiny. Until she is secure in herself enough to be on her own 100%. Right? And that, like, the entire game of The Witcher 3, right, the, the main quest line is Ciri's story, right, told through the eyes of Geralt to some degree, where you're like, once you find her, it then shifts, right? You're tracking her down, you find her, and then it shifts to the second part of that story. It's much, albeit much shorter, but you're getting, you, you get a lot more of that interaction with Ciri, and she becomes her own person. So it's important. The game doesn't flesh out any of that, barely any of her as a child. You get, like, the one little scene. In this area much like the books, you're getting a lot more of that insight into what it was like being her, right? As she kind of, you know, one experience losing everything, going through trying to like, you know, find Geralt, find safety. And then hopefully in season two, they bring her into, oh yeah, by the way, you have these crazy powers and, you know, uh, you might bring her around the end of the world possibly. Let's figure it out, right? And I think it's interesting that if you really like series character and you've only read through book one, uh, like I'm really fascinated to see what you're going to think of Siri as you keep reading because, yeah, she goes through a lot. Oh, I can't wait to see it. Mernsey, you thought a lot of these side characters were really well done, especially the people around Sintra. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what made them stand out for you? I, th I, I think, so yeah, like, Kalanthi and Mausak and um, like Ice Tursik, uh, all three of them I just thought were really interesting and like all the sort of like triangle or triad that they were like Mausak was always kind of on Geralt's side um, but still had to serve Kalanthi and then like uh, Iced was 
like understanding of Geralt's perspective and and believed in his like right to her via the via the law of surprise, but then ended up having to back Calanthe at the end anyway because you know she was his wife and she was the queen and so on and so forth. And then Calanthe's whole thing of not wanting to lose her last like you know granddaughter in this case after losing her daughter like she's the only family that she still had and not wanting to lose that and how like those those different things drive those characters um in sort of like knowing like where destiny is going to take things uh i just think it's really fascinating how they brought like the the that sort of conflict internal and with Geralt sort of to a head um, and I think all three of the actors did a really good job of bringing those characters to life. I agree. Uh, a lot of time spent in Sintra in this show. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of time there. Got to set it up. If it's series story, that's where it starts. Fair enough. I say what I felt the best character for last. I thought that yeah. Anna gosh, really, really should have watch something to learn how to say her name. Kalatra was outstanding as Yennefer of Vengenberg. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but in the books, she's like a stone-cold bee. You don't know where she's coming from. You get that she's a badass. You get that she probably has some baggage from somewhere, but you don't really understand why. The show spends a lot of time delving into Yennefer's backstory, and I thought it was just executed phenomenally. Yeah, I agree. I mean, she is definitely a high point. Uh, she's definitely a high point in the series, for sure. right they and they nail her strength and her vulnerability and her weakness right in fact like those first scenes where she is not pretty Yennefer right where she hasn't come into her own as a sorceress and hasn't figured out how to like get past like to even find her power like just amazing right like show like they show her determination right and give you that other side of the character that i think you really do miss in the books and even in the games that you don't get to see agreed executed just phenomenally let's talk about some of the stories that we were excited to see portrayed on the big screen one that stood out to all three of us the bounds of reason the story about the dragons and Geralt's adventure with these adventuring parties i mentioned earlier that i thought it was it could have been adapted better as a movie this is the rare instance where i think something would have stood alone better as a movie as opposed to like a one hour episodic show i just felt like it was a little bit condensed from the story burns you hadn't read the story when you watched the show and then you enjoyed reading it afterwards what made this episode so noteworthy to you i think for me it's just it's a really i think it's just a really well constructed story and um, like like I said before, it's like taking that trope of going on this journey to slay a dragon and turning it on its head, as well as just, you know, having enough, like, interesting characters, you know, within there. Uh, you have, like, the, the brave and gallant but idiotic knight who slays, like, a very sick, uh, like, vampire creature and then eats it and then gets, like, just desperately sick <laughs> and is trying to, like, pass it off very, like, uh, very, like... <laughs> Nobly. Heroically, yeah. while his, his guts are just churning and he has to run off and crap against a tree where he's killed. Yeah. You know, it's just, like, I, there's just so many things that are just so interesting about it. And 
I think like the the character who plays three jackdaws is just really good, uh, and and does a really good job of just capturing this this lovable kind of old adventurer that, that wants to go on this last adventure, uh, and, and then how it all kind of comes together at the end is just really phenomenal and interesting and well done, um, and 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 then the interplay between like Geralt and Yennefer throughout that. I think is interesting. I think it's better done in the, in the story than it is in, in, in the show. Um, I don't know that it could make a full hour and a half movie, uh, but I do think it was interesting enough to, I think it was, I, I really liked the episode a lot. I guarantee you it would be a better movie than the dark tower. Well, that's, that probably doesn't take much. John, I think that, uh, you know, why I liked it, you know, a lot of people coming into this series don't have the background that we had. They haven't played the games. They're not reading the books. They're just, I'm going to watch this cool thing. And I think this episode, as well as I don't, I don't mention in our notes here, but also the episode uh, where Dandelion and Geralt are captured by the Scoia'tael, right? Mm-hmm. Both those episodes do an excellent job of bringing in the non-central characters into play right we spend a lot of time in the series focused on siri focused on yen focused on Geralt, right and we don't get that side quest feel that's so great about that in that in this entire world and so we get that in this episode like i said it's the heist episode right and all these characters are awesome right I agree with you, Tom. I think it would probably be better if it had a little more length so you could, you know, expand out on a few things. Um, But I think what it really allows the series to do is let's take a break and let's bring in some more of the world so we can give some of these bigger episodes that are coming down the pipe later some more weight. Because if we just spend the whole time in Sintra, we're going to lose everybody. And this shows me like, oh, this is why these other areas are important. This world is more than just a bunch of warring armies. Yeah, well said. <laughs> I don't have a rebuttal. <laughs> John, we were both excited for the lesser evil. I don't think I gave you a chance to talk about this earlier, but this is one of the short stories that you really liked. This is the Witcher's take on Cinderella and... In this case, Renfrey, the Cinderella character, is a disgraced princess who's been chased by assassins her whole life, and she essentially has the primary assassin, a mage named Stregobar, trapped in his tower, and she is set to kill him if she has to murder every single person in town, literally murder every single person in town to lure him out of his tower. How, what did you think of the execution of this story on the screen? It was great, right? The... I mean, what stands out to me is the agency at the end and the urgency, excuse me, the urgency at the end of Geralt to, like, stop this. When it reaches that tipping point where he has to make that choice and he knows, that's it. And he just goes into, like, kill mode to stop these bandits. Just an amazing fight scene. And then that fight between Geralt and Renfri was so fantastic. And even in that, he's then having to make that final decision of like, do I kill her? Because if I don't, she's, she's not going to stop. She's going to keep pushing. And then 
having to then watch that outcome of it. Physically watch like uh, Cavill as Geralt, like like I just saved all of you, and they're like, get out of my town. Mm-hmm. Look what you brought. Get out of my town, right? So extremely important moment to me for this character because, you know, like Burns has said, this follows him everywhere, right? And we get to see that this is what the world is. And I feel like it's something that's completely relatable because everybody's been in a situation where you did the right thing. And even though you did the right thing, everybody hates you for it. Right. And like gives that level of empathy for Geralt that I, you know, shifts him from being a monster into being someone we care about. I have that perspective pretty much every time I play a cooperative game. <laughs> I always do the right thing, and for some reason, people always think that I'm a... Yeah. Burns, why is that? Uh, uh, no comment. I'm such a valuable member of the team. Occam's razors. <laughs> In the interest of times, given how long we've already spoken about The Witcher, let's pick one area where the show differed from the books and talk about whether or not that was a positive or negative change. I'll start to give you guys just a moment to think about your responses. Um, I've touched on a lot of these already. For me, the story doesn't jump around as much. Well, they're sometimes unrelated stories that come from different places. They're all flowing in the same general direction. They're all pushing Geralt and Ciri towards their destiny together. And I really appreciated the more... It wasn't entirely linear, but... I thought it was a more cohesive push towards a tangible ending, and I appreciated that change from the books. I thought it made it a much more palatable, not palatable, that makes it sound like the books are trash, but it was just <laughs> a more enjoyable ride for me this way. So you heard it from Tom, the books are trash. The uh, <laughs> hey, series is the only way to go about it. Hey, it is my job to put words in your mouth. <laughs> Don't you tell me, my friend. <laughs> uh, I do think, though, like... I, I think even though it's like chronologically, some of the stuff that they're showing is happening at completely different times. It makes sense for the logic of understanding the story. And and so I think it, I think it works a lot better in the series than it does in the books. Um, Cause I remember like afterwards, like reading some reviews or so what some people thought about the series after I finished it and people were like, gosh, things were just all over the place. Like this was happening at this time at the same time as this was happening at a different time. And I was just like, well, I never noticed that. It was just, it all made sense as I watched through it and as they told me what was going on. So yeah, I'll agree with you a hundred percent on that, that I, I, I never had a problem with that. Um, one of the things, and, and I'm not going to say too much about it, but the thing like with where I'm at in the books now and rewatching the first series or the, yeah, the first season of the series is I, I'm really curious in the series what they're doing with the Nilfgaardian with the winged helmet, because like it, I, it's just I just don't know what they're doing with that character in the series and how that's going to connect in with like what I know has happened with that character in the books. <laughs> like I, I'm just having a hard time sort of reconciling the two at the moment. Then again, I know from a time perspective, like things are very different and it's just, there's like this question as to like, what is going on with 
in general, Nilfgaard, like the pieces we got to see with Nilfgaard, like one of the other things I mentioned was Fringilla Vigo. Um, It's just, it's so interesting, like what, how much more they've played a role in the series than they did in the books at the time we were getting this information in the books. And so I'm fascinated to see like where that actually goes in like the second season. And if that ever starts to meet up with the books or if they're going in a different direction with those characters, I'm just really curious, like where that all is going. So you both touched on two of mine, right? (laughs) So the, the, which, which I I agree kind of on both points. Right. Uh, But one thing I think was a big, shift from the books and maybe it's just because of where we are at in the story but we talked about like we just sit and we focus on Sintra right we don't touch any of the other areas we're not hearing about Foltest we're not hearing about you know Tamaria we're hearing about any of the other of the other zones or the other you know countries that are worried about Nilfgaard mm-hmm. right and we're not even getting like anything really from like a Nilfgaardian standpoint, except for like, they're the big bad. Yeah. Right. Right. So there's this level of, I'm, I'm interested to see, like there is that focus in the books. I'm like, Hey, let's really get into the political machinations, what's happening behind the scenes on all these big powers. Right. And that's a key part of like, Hey, especially when you start talking about Siri. And I think it's partly due to that, how we're doing that, they did the storytelling of all three at once. You can't have all the rulers come in and start talking Mm -hmm. about how we have to find the lion cub of Sintra when you're watching her run away. Right. So that pacing got impacted and that part of the story had to kind of get moved. And I'm looking forward to seeing some of that in season two, even though it's not necessarily my favorite part of the books, they did such a good job with Sintra in season one. I'm hoping that will expand and be a little more Game of Thrones like because now I can physically see mm-hmm. all these different factions and I'm like, ah, oh, okay, now I know who everybody is and let's get the fight. And I'm wondering if the natural transition of that is like, so we got the Battle of Sodden in the last episode, which I thought was awesome because they talk about it so much in the books. And then like, I mean, obviously I saw that before I read the books, but it was interesting because they build it up in the books, but it never really goes into it, at least as far as I made it in the books. Um, And so it was interesting to see that happen and see that like that occur. But then at the end of that, the very end of that King Foltis with the Tamarian army shows up at the end of the battle of Sodden, which is why the Nilfgaardians went away. And so I wonder if that's almost maybe a natural progression into him playing a larger role, Tamaria playing a role that maybe then brings in um, Vernon Roach. um, And then also starts to get into maybe Redania a little bit. I'm sure they're going to go to Novigrad, um, or they're going to some big city at least, as it looked like from the trailer of this of the second season. And so uh, I, I'm guessing that a lot more of that. I know Dijkstra is a character in the IMDb, so he's going to pop up. So that that has to mean that some of that stuff's going to come come in the second season. Then yeah, let's get some good politicking going on. Exactly. Yeah. Go all Game of Thrones on this B. Yes. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Let's talk about some of the things that surprised us in the show. I thought they did something interesting where they kind of tried to intermix different storylines at the same time. Like, the one that stood out to me was Geralt was fighting the Striga, which I view as one of the iconic monster fights in the entire Witcher series. It was 
in the books. It was in the it was in the intro video for the first Witcher game. They had an awesome video of Geralt fighting the Striga, uh, and it just looked the monster looked dopey and dumb in the show, it was, <laughs> which was unfortunate. But it was interesting how they intermixed that fight with Yennefer's physical transformation and the surgery that she went under to have her um looks enhanced and like locked in for all time i i didn't expect them to try to mix things together that often and i thought for the most part they did it really well yeah i I think so too and it's interesting because that's also then tied in with full test and you know his daughter and so while that's happening and you know Geralt's trying to save someone's daughter then at the same time Yennefer is solidifying the fact that she will never have one uh which I think is is interesting um and I can't remember if that episode has any bits about Siri in it as well I would guess it does because she's got little bits in every one of the episodes um so it'd be interesting to see if that ties into all of that stuff too since she becomes like the de facto daughter of Geralt and Yennefer but uh I don't know. Yeah, I think that is really. I never thought of it from that perspective, but it does make sense. Um, that was the, that was one of my big surprises, right? With this was just that pacing and how they tied everything mm-hmm. together. How you were keeping three storylines that were going within three different timelines together, and then how that was revealed, right? During different episodes, right? Uh, and how they did a really good job, I think too. And like some of those episodes where like the timelines really didn't matter. Kind of like, you know, the dragon episode, things that nature where they were just the more of the like, Hey, this is just a fun adventure. Right. Um, and how they broke those in. So I think the pacing of the entire show was done extremely well. Agreed. You both mentioned that the combat was done really well in this show. It's hard to have a fantasy show about a warrior of any kind with two swords on his back without having good fighting i guess i don't have a good leading question (laughs) here like the fighting was good it was an enjoyable part of the show yeah i think they they believable yeah right it's believable and i think they did a good job you know they had big shoes to fill when you were coming from so they already had one there's a witcher tv show that was in poland which I just found out tonight by looking at IMDb. I want to check that out. But also, like, there was a lot, you know, like you just said, Witcher 1 had that great Striga fight, right? There's, you know, all the content in the Witcher 3 and Witcher 2 that was showing here's how a Witcher fights, right? So, you know, there was this shorthand of what we need this to kind of look at and look like. And, you know, I think the reason one huge reason why this did as well as it does and why Cavill is the best Geralt is because he loved the game and played the game and understood all that and said, I got to make sure I get this right. And it's got to look like the game looks when you're in that flow in that. And I think it does a really good job of mirroring that while being exciting and new. And it's so interesting because I read something where the showrunner and the writer, she decided that, she was going to portray the books and not the games. So it's interesting to hear you say that Cavill brought the fighting style from the games because that wasn't an intent of the show at all. But for those of us who have played the game, I think it was an important part of the portrayal of the Witcher. Yeah. And, and, and the flow and the speed of the combat, I think was also really well done. Um, there, 
I mean, and this is mostly going off of his fight against like people because there weren't a whole lot of combat scenes like with monsters. I mean, it starts off with one right away, um, which, you know, has a fairly anticlimactic end to it. And I don't know. I, I think it'll be interesting to see if they develop that part of it a little bit more in yeah. like the second season, more fights, uh, more more fights with more monsters. Uh, yeah, hopefully or, the monster budget goes up just a touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, especially, yeah, some of them are not <laughs> the most interesting CGI. Fighting good. It's, <laughs> it's impossible to talk about a popular fantasy show without drawing comparisons to Game of Thrones. And I don't want us to go onto a huge, long diatribe about the two different shows, but I thought... They can't escape comparison. So how well does The Witcher hold up versus Game of Thrones? I'll start. I like the smaller scope of The Witcher. I like that it focused on Geralt, Yennefer, and Ciri. Like, there's the most unfortunate part of the world that George R. R. Martin created is just how it's sprawled. For me, my interest is centered on Westeros and the conflict between the Starks and the Lannisters. Everything else on Westeros is tangential and somewhat interesting everything that happens outside of westeros sucks no you 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 can't leave off the journey of the one true king stannis baratheon that has to be a part of it um and yeah, then, he's in westeros he's dragon keep is part of westeros i know but but you said only the starks and lannisters matter but uh stannis baratheon matters you know and and if you don't have renly but baratheon you don't have the uh the uh, lovely uh, what's her nuts from uh, High Garden there, you know Marjorie Tyrell, you know, and nice boo bands. Yeah, there. yeah, exactly, you know, and I, so everything, everything plays a part, and everything is necessary. Uh, but but it's it's two very different books, um, two different, very different worlds. Um, but I think they do a good job of staying true to The Witcher and what it is. I will be interested, like John was saying, though, to see if they bring in more of the world itself and the politics uh, moving forward, because that is an aspect of it. It's not the focal point, but it is important to know how these characters are like trying to navigate through these other things that are happening around them. We got a little bit of that with Sintra and Nilfgaard, but more of that has to come, I think, as more uh, as this as the series goes on more. As long as Ciri doesn't end up sitting on a throne on some other faraway continent, completely removed from all the things, all the interesting things are happening, I guess I'll be on board. I, I do like how in The Witcher, there were less of the like, oh, wow moments, right? Or I can't believe that happened or this or that, right? I feel like Game of Thrones, while I loved when they did most of them, there was always like, you know, you're just waiting for the like unexpected thing so much that it became the expected thing. Like, oh, they would never kill that character. So, yep, they killed that character. Uh-huh. Or they would never do that. So, yep, they killed this thing, right? So I'm like, you can only do that so many times before it gets boring and, and a little bit, you know, played out. And I like that that hasn't been the case. They haven't had any of that. Now, again, I'm familiar with the, the content, right? So I didn't read you know, the, you know, Song of Fire ice books and all that stuff prior to watching the show. So if I would have seen it, then it would have been maybe a little bit more of that like, Ooh, is this thing going to happen? And then it does and I'm like, cool. So, but I'm, I'm glad that 
they are not breaking the the norm just to break the norm, which I feel like uh, Game of Thrones started to do. Sure. I mean, they're both they're both good things. They're both good fantasy yeah. shows, and I don't think that The Witcher necessarily happens without Game of Thrones happening first. And I'm I love and respect how Game of Thrones opened the door for all these other fantasy properties to get their screen adaptations. Plus side, we have an ending, right? So, <laughs> right, these books are done. Although he did just he did make more short stories, but there's a wrap up to the story. So. We know there's like a bookend in sight. So it's just like, hey, please just make sure you do this in like a decent amount of time so we get all of it on screen, please. Yeah, at least like the story's already been written. So like the end point is already written. They're working towards something. I don't know what it is yet because I haven't made it there in the books. But, you know, I'm sure that was a very challenging thing for Game of Thrones to overcome with trying to portray things that got past the written works. Game of Thrones was pretty good. Game of Thrones was good. Let's come to our final impressions of the first season of The Witcher. I thought that Cavill was much better than I expected. I I didn't have very high hopes for him. I you know, he was fine as Superman, but I'm I thought he nailed Geralt and I'm so thrilled that he did. Uh, Burns, this was your entry point into The Witcher. How did the this show kind of launch your interest into the larger Witcher universe? Yeah, I, I, so it did a really good job of drawing me into it and wanting to then read uh, the books and play the game. Uh, you know, I'd played a little bit of the game before that, so I had an understanding of what a Witcher was and wh- who Geralt was uh, and a little bit about what the story was and knew I've heard the names Yennefer and Triss and met them briefly in the game. But it was really cool to see a lot more of them uh, in the first season. Uh, I do think that I would like to see more monster hunting moving forward, um, or at least more interaction with monsters and not necessarily hunting per se. Um, I do think some of like the more periphery periphery characters um, were pretty rough, like especially like Sabrina as a mage. Uh, like her character, like in the books, there's a lot more like just at least like oomph behind her personality. Whereas in 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 the in the show, she's like very wooden, especially if you look at the Battle of Sodden and like she's just like she doesn't say anything. And, and like her character in the in the books is is always saying something, whether it's worth anything. She's always saying something, and she's kind of a bee, and you're just not really getting a whole lot of that personality out of it. For what it's worth, I have no idea who you're even talking about. Yeah, so it's, yeah, one of the mages that she went to school with, um, who then, like, gets sent off to one of the places, and, like, the only real change in her transformation is that she just got bigger boobs. Um, And then, yeah, they just there isn't much that stands out with her character. And I'm just interested to see if they do more with that um, to befit like kind of the role that that wizard plays Um, Sabrina Glevisig or not. I guess I don't know. Um, But yeah, I think otherwise, yeah, it, it, it was a really good entry point. I think it does a really good job of like navigating you through the stories in the first two books uh, and I'm really curious to see with season two how it like carries forward. 
It will be interesting when it moves away from the short stories and into either original content or more of the novelization. John, you were drawn to the focus on the first Nilfgaardian invasion and then closing with the battle in Sodden. What, how did those stories carry the show for you? It's, you know, especially having played the game, you know, the second threat of Nilfgaard, Nilfgaard invading again, right? It's always this looming, you know, thing with, you know, you start in that game, like dealing with these people who have just been fighting the Nilfgaardian army. So to start that series and to see like that first conflict and see where Nilfgaard actually like, you know, where Sintra fell, right? And it began that first conflict between these two nations. I thought was a great starting point to, you know, give a more drilled down focus on, you know, this important, important battle, right? It was like really the turning point because they had, you know, they had pushed them back before, you know, we'd, we've, we've pushed them. We stopped the Nilfgaardians before we'll stop them again. And then they attack Sintra and they lose, Right. And it's just such an important thing where like, no, there's a changing of the guard and because of like, you know, you know, how they're handling mages differently there, how they do things differently. And there's all this, these factions that are shifting and so much came, there's so much there and such little dialogue and little exposition, right. I'm shown exactly kind of what's going on and I fully understood it and I thought it was great to see a lot of that and see how that impacted that small cast of characters that we got to get a closer insight into some would say it was a changing of the Nilfgaard nice (laughs) (laughs) throughout the books that we read and throughout the show there is this underlying theme of destiny that there's this current of destiny that draws Geralt and Ciri along together at the end of the show they are finally united for the first time in the show uh the books was a slightly different thing although it wrapped on a similar note john what did you think of that final connection point where Geralt and siri finally came together so it's the it's the perfect stopping point right for this series it it really does just bookend it all and i loved how that episode you had all three timelines going Right, you had Geralt passed out, being traveled along. You had Ciri running through the woods, and you know you had the Battle of Sodden going on. So you have all these things going on, and then as you get closer and closer, you can start to see where the connections are forming, and then you see in like especially you know again, having read, I knew what was kind of I know what's happening. So there's that anticipation, yay, it's gonna happen. But also think about all the people who didn't know if it's gonna happen. And like didn't catch because, you know, a lot of people didn't catch that. These were all different timelines now converging on this spot. Right. So to see that kind of converge on that one spot and to bring that all together, I think it was the best way they could have possibly said, hey, we have all this great content for all these short stories. That is great backstory that everyone should read before you start doing these books and this big story so let's figure out how we can jump all that together so it makes better sense than it does when you just read the last wish and you read sort of destiny right and it brought it in 
in just such a great way and it just gives you like that warm feels where you're like yes <laughs> right like it is they didn't and they didn't do like something that I was fearful of of where like oh I expect Geralt and Siri to get together right here but nope we're going to actually make it so they don't get together there and completely change how this goes because we want to be different and we're going to make this our own. I'm like, no, you stay true to like <laughs> a storyline in that important moment. It was executed so well. I actually hadn't read the, uh, the last short story before seeing this episode. So seeing their connection, like I knew I was coming in the short story. I'm like, Oh, they did that really well. I'm, I'm glad it came together. So, so well. Yeah, I agree. I I, th- I think they did well with it, even though it, the context of it's a little bit different in the show than it was in the in in the story. Because before that, they had to an extent met. met. Um, with the show, Yurga's wife kept popping up around Siri and kept trying to help her. And like, my spider sense went off with her. I'm like, is she like a crone? Is she going to try <laughs> to like eat Siri or something? Like, what's happening here? Who is this? overly Why benevolent she woman so nice yeah she Why is she so nice in this world of like people that have been just like consistently jerks exactly she was such an outlier i'm like oh there's got to be something more here nope just a nice lady she was an agent of destiny trying to bring them together an angel of destiny Ooh. you know it's, it's interesting because then when you look at her husband carding Geralt, right like he didn't have to do that. He mm-hmm. could have been like, "Sweet, now let me go ahead and take your silver sword and this and that, and leave you for dead. You save me, and I'm gonna go along my way." No, like he put himself at risk to help save the Witcher because the Witcher saved him. So, another cool way to show, like you know, the positive side of humanity in the show, and that not everyone is crappy in this overbearing, oppressive world. There is still good. There's still good people. Yeah. I mean, most of the people are crappy. Most of them. Vast majority. Yes. I have kind of a hot take on season one. I think it would have been more interesting if the show followed Dandelion and Geralt was just a side character. And it was all Dandelion, like, chasing history. Am I crazy? You guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. I don't think you're that crazy because Dandelion is the narrator in the the glossary of the books or in in the game. So when you read all the glossary and all the character stuff, all that stuff is actually being written to you by Dandelion. And you can tell that because when you go read his profile, uh-huh. it is like the most flowery, like, <laughs> oh, oh, he's the greatest bard that's ever. Da, 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 da. Right? Uh, so, like, it would be cool to have that, a little bit more of that narration from him <clears throat> over the top would have been kind of, I think would be a different take on it would have changed the tone of everything, but would definitely be, uh, be welcomed. And, and I, I would like to see an episode that's like that. And then like you, you get like the first 45 minutes are dandelions accounting of it. And then the last like 10 minutes are Geralt's accounting of it. And like dandelions knocked out the majority of the time or something. I, I just think that would be hilarious too, you know, to, to take it that direction and, and show you, you know, how he's puffing this up and then what actually happened, which was much more straightforward to the point. <laughs> I think they have an opportunity for the, the doo-doo, uh, yeah. dandelion Dis- Dixtra quest line with the heist. Mm-hmm. Right. That would be good stuff. That would be good stuff. Burns out is an awesome idea for a show. <laughs> Let's wrap it up with our hopes and expectations for seasons two. My first point, very simple, more monsters. 
Geralt is a monster hunter for Christ's sake, and there are two in the first. Give me a drowner. Like, those could look dopey. There's a million of them in the game. Just <laughs> give me a stupid dude in a fish costume. Agreed. More monsters. Bernsey, you'd like to see other characters from the written works. Yeah, and, and I'm just, it's more so my curiosity is to, to what extent, you know, because, you know, looking at the trailer or the two trailers that they've released for the next season. And so, you know, they're going to care Morhen and he's going to meet, they're going to meet the rest of the witchers. And so I'm really curious to what extent, how much or how little are they going to be in it? Um, I'm really interested in seeing, like you were saying, how much of this, or you both were saying, how much of this is going to stick to the storyline of the novels and how much is going to veer off. I'm also curious just how far the next season's going to get into the storyline. Like, do we get to the Isle of Thaned and everything that happens there? Is that like the end of season cliffhanger? Uh, or does it end before that? Does it get after that? I guess I don't know. I'm really curious to see like how deep it gets into there. Well, yeah, and you know, they just spent an entire season getting Geralt and Ciri together. Mm-hmm. Right? Like... How much time is it going to be before like we separate again? Because that's really where the books kind of kick off, right? Yeah. Is all right, you know, you're a woman now, and we're witchers, and we don't know how to handle these womanly uh-huh. spells you're having. So we need to get you know someone to help us out, and then you know actually she needs to go off to you know study with the dryads and stuff. So like. When do we see that happen? Do we see that happen? Do mm-hmm. we get that weird timeline shifting to where maybe they start at the end, right? And then they get us to the beginning. So Yeah, yeah let's Tarantino this B again. <laughs> they did it with this so well this time, I would be just fine with a multiple timeline structure on this. Which they could do, right? They mm-hmm. could do when they get to like when uh you have Siri and Yen traveling and Geralt trying to find them, mm-hmm. right? To stop uh, Renfrey, not Renfrey. Uh, Rince. Rince, thank you. Yes. Right? And, and chasing down Rince. So there's some really cool stuff that I'm looking forward to that, seeing that stuff and seeing like Geralt investigate who this guy is, right? seeing dandelion being tortured and all that like there's there's some cool stuff that's on the way it'll be very fun to see season two i'm mm-hmm. excited yep well gentlemen this has been the longest episode of outsiders overrated ever and we don't even have an interview on this episode do we have any other closing thoughts on the witcher either season one the witcher three wild hunt or the first three books i mean I, i've spent like hundreds of hours preparing for this podcast if you take like reading what six books so far and to be fair i only told you to read three books, i know so. i know but 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 mr the, overachiever but here the point i'm getting to is that like i didn't need to put that much time into all of this in order to prepare for this but i wanted to read as much as i could play as much as i could rewatch the first season again because i was just drawn into the story from all three sides. Uh, And so I would highly recommend any of the things. Like I said, it's not groundbreaking fiction by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a really interesting read and it's a really interesting story. And so I'd I'd highly recommend it to to anyone. 
uh, to try whichever one of these three medium mediums is more accessible to you in order to try to access this story because I think it's worth it. Burn says, "Watch the show." I mean, yeah, that's probably the most accessible to most people. But John, your closing thoughts on The Witcher, your favorite, the greatest game in all of all time in your estimation, the books, the show, like it's been awesome having you here. What are your closing thoughts? So. One, I think it's fantastic that the longest episode of OIO is based upon one of the longest games in all existence, <laughs> so I think it's only fitting. Um, you know, if you are into role-playing games, right, pick this game up. Put some time into it, and actually put some time into it. I've had so many people bounce off The Witcher 3, and I will continue to say, go back, keep trying again and again if you're into story-driven games, right? If you bounce off and you're like, nope, not for me, please at least go watch the Netflix series, right? I, I have to applaud this universe because it's not many many you know pieces of creative work that can function as well across three different types of media, Right? with having slightly different storylines along the way in all of them, but to have the same impact and the same kind of, you know, character building throughout them. Right. So no matter which way you engage with this world, it's, you know, fulfilling and entertaining and just, just a joy. So please like pick one, or be crazy like me and Burns and Tom and pick all three, right? Because it is worth your time. It definitely is. Hats off to Sarpovsky for creating this incredible world and these rich characters that can survive different media. Like, It is hard for written works to go to this screen. I can't think of another instance where a written work translated into a video game, so... Hats off to Sarpovsky and to CD Projekt Red, and I should probably give credit to the showrunner of the Netflix series who created it. Henry Cavill. He's the one who created it. <laughs> His face created it. <laughs> but The Witcher is awesome, and take Burns' advice. Consume it in whichever media format is your best. Completely disregard everything John said over the last four hours. <laughs> Garbage opinions. Play the game. Greatest of all time. Go, go, go. <laughs> Next month, we are going back to the table to take a look at the most enticing board game titles being crowdfunded for 2022. Thank you for listening to this mammoth episode of Outside is Overrated. Please review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. For Joey at Hobbybox Burns and at John at Not on the Internet, I'm Tom Sedlachik <laughs> at Tom Sedlachik OIO. We'll talk to you next month if we have our voices back. Stay inside, kids. This was the first time I ever got a bloody nose on the show, and we just rolled right through it. Good job, guys. Yeah, way to power through. Yeah, that was a little awkward. Well, I tried to uh, say we're going to pause for a minute, and John just kept right on talking. I'm like, all right, I'll just stick my nose in the air. This is how I live anyways. <laughs> I, didn't even know, it's, uh, I didn't even notice, so you're good. All right.
John, what did you think of that final connection where Gerald... Gerald. Oh, God. I was such a better host three hours ago. <laughs> Four hours ago. 